All right, folks, that's our show. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm not putting that in there, by the way. That was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) All right, stop and clench. Here we go. You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Gregos81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. For episode 61, we'll take a look at the first two titles released from the Danish indie studio Play Dead Games. Limbo and Inside seem to complement each other perfectly in style and gameplay, but does that mean either one of these strange and potentially disturbing titles is worth your time? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a good review. On Twitter, we're at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks again for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. like a cigarette so pass it across the table like ping pong i'm gone beating my chest like king kong and some wrap my lips around the phony and when it comes to getting another stogie fools all kick in like shinobi know me ain't my homie to begin with it's too many hands to be probably let my friend hit bit unless you pull out the fat crispy five dollar bill on the real before it's history because fools be having a vacuum lungs and if you let them hit up a free you well I come to school with a tailor on my earlobe Avoiding all the flick teasers, skeezers and weirdos Got me throwing off the land like where the bomb at Give me two bucks, you take a puff and pass my bomb back Suck up the dank like a slurpee, the serious Bomb will make a nigga go delirious like Eddie Murphy I got more growing pains than Maggie Cause homies nag me to take the dank out of the baggie Whenever I can, don't need no crutch. I'm so keyed up. Oh. All right. All right. You got my silence. <laughs>
It sounds like we're going to have conflicting energy levels today, Rich, and you can explain why, but I got to tell you, I am feeling so good. I'm so hyped to record. I have so much energy. Life sometimes can be so amazing that it almost makes me want to cry, and I am ready to rock and roll with you. All right. I might have to pass you the show notes then. Sounds good. Let's do it. Energy level's pretty good considering I had 12 preteen girls over at the house last night for a slumber party. It is my daughter's 11th birthday tomorrow, actually. So uh, that was quite chaotic last night, but not too bad, man. Once we got them settled in, we just kind of closed our bedroom door and nodded right off to sleep, you know? Nice. Now, did you throw on perfect blue for them to watch? <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> would have kept them from being uh, Japanese pop stars if I had, you know, leads them down that uh, horrible road. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's something we will definitely, definitely talk about later on in the show. And we'll also hear from one of our good friends on social media about it. But uh, yeah, man, this is the last recording before what I've dubbed as BroFest 2019, which is when we're going to meet in Austin, right? Yeah, a month from today. It's going to be pretty awesome, and I can't wait. I still am kind of nervous about you and I sitting in what should be a face-to-face conversation, (laughs) but we'll be sitting at my tiny little computer desk facing my 12-year-old computer as it lurches forward trying to record us in all of our majesty in person together. It's going to be awkwardly awesome. Yeah, that's going to be great, man. No worries here. I'll wear deodorant that day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Now, I was telling you, before the call, you got to give me some uh, recommendations of some uh, great places to see out there. The only thing I've heard about is the uh, the bridge with the bats, which uh, Dude, is a must not miss. Yeah, the South Congress Avenue Bat Bridge is really cool. And don't let anybody... <laughs> talk it because it's a tourist trap it's a tourist trap is the wrong phrase because that implies that you're being grifted out of your money it's this is free all you got to do is stand on a bridge and watch 50 million bats fly out from underneath it it's amazing anybody who poo-poos that so (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) (laughs) oh man that bridge i run under it quite frequently and the Pungent aroma of guano is definitely part of that uh, experience. Yeah, man, I'm excited about that. I don't know how my wife's going to take it. She's not a big fan of, like, rodents or um, bugs, and bats are kind of flying rodents, although, you know, we have them here. Uh, They fly around our pool and our uh, lights to, uh, you know, eat the mosquitoes, which is wonderful. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of wondering how she's going to take it, but she seems pretty jacked about it. So I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Well, maybe I can use this to segue into something, because if you would like to see the Stevie Ray Vaughan statue, you can not only see it in person next month, but you can look on Twitter because I was at it this morning. Did you happen to see that and why I was there? I did not. Tell me, why were you there? I ran a 5K race this morning, which might have something to do with my energy level. I thought it would be lacking instead of having more. (laughs) (laughs) I knew mine would be. 
Well, uh, not to show off or be a braggart, but for me, 5K is a very short distance. So I woke up early, I drank coffee, I wore my Jaws tank top, which is, I, I should say is actually my wife's jaws tank top so i was decked out black from head to toe with a black headband i just was really rocking it i felt the power and i ran the sunshine run in downtown austin as the beautiful texas sun rose over the capital city and i came in with a final time officially of 2350 Oh, nice, man. So I'm very happy with that. It's not a personal record or anything, but as I mentioned on the show previously, I've been trying to keep my 5K time about sub 25. So to come in under 24, I was very happy with that. And especially when you're at a race that's very crowded. uh, Yes, I was going to say that. Human traffic. (laughs) Right. So even if it's chip timed, which this one was... You spend the first 20 to 30 seconds of the race navigating people who aren't running. And this particular race had a dog participation in the beginning. Yeah. And they let them out (laughs) first out of the shoot. I don't understand why. But the dogs went first, which is foolishness. Uh, The dogs should have went last with the walkers. But it is what it is. So anyway, I ran my race this morning, feeling great, feeling wonderful, and uh, I'm ready to kick some ass. Cool, man. Speaking of ass and assholes, oh. let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about some of our friends who pointed out some mistakes in the last show. And of course, ITs they are good friends of ours. But uh, yeah, I mean, if we do make mistakes in the show, I don't mind people pointing those out. And you know, it's kind of good for us to have a little segment, maybe at the beginning, talking about hey, these are some mistakes we've made. We're imperfect humans, and that's going to happen when we podcast. But our buddy Krabby, he came out and he told me something about Metallica. He said, you know, just so you know, you spoke on the show and you said that was Dave Mustaine, you know, who ended up forming Megadeth. That was the first album that he wasn't on. And I think I did say that in the podcast, but what I had meant to say was this was the first album that he wasn't a part of. He actually did not play on any of their studio albums, but he was with the band before they started releasing albums and had contributed to a lot of the music and a lot of the songs for those. But Master of Puppets really was the first time where he didn't get any of the songwriting credit, though arguably he argues that one song was his, but... Um, from the band and Metallica, they say he had no part in uh, Master of Puppets. So, uh, yeah, just wanted to clear that up. Well, that's interesting. That's a good clarification. I mean, I find it as interesting as anything. And uh, it reminds me of the dude from Nirvana, the second guitarist, uh, Jason Everman, who is on the front cover of Bleach. And he had nothing to do with that recording. So there you go. This next one's a little bit more controversial. Yeah, there was a comment that we were trying to say that it was the first RPG 
in America, which I kind of felt like on the show, we clearly defined that that wasn't true. You know, we mentioned Ultima and uh, other things, but I think they brought up like Dragon Stomper, which was a uh, supercharger game that was on the 2600. The the supercharger was an adapter to the Atari 2600 that actually used cassette tapes. You'd put a cassette tape in your cassette player, and then you would put in the adapter to the supercharger into the cassette player, and then pop it into the 2600 and play games that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, I get it. It certainly was not the first RPG, and I don't think we specifically said that, but I don't know. Maybe I should go back and listen. Where I might have misspoke a little is that I said that Dragon Quest was the first console RPG. Mm -hmm. And what it really is to most people is the first JRPG. I misspoke and I'm really f***ing sorry. All right. (laughs) Clearly. So yeah, I did notice that as we got into the more technical part of the segment that my language was a lot more careful and I think I was being a little more offhand in the beginning and I just used the wrong words. But I can tell you, Rich, I listen back every time we have a new episode and every once in a while I'll go back and listen to old episodes just to see how we've progressed and you know what were we chatting about back a year ago, two years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we make plenty of mistakes. There's a lot of stuff. It's like, oh, oh yeah. I, I wish I could take that one back. Like, what the hell was I thinking there? You know, and not just dumb opinions of which I have many that change on a constant <laughs> basis. But yeah, factual errors and, you know, it happens. So I would love to go on record more often with corrections. The thing is that when I'm listening, I'm usually listening at work and I can't stop and say, oh, in episode, you know, 33, I said this about (laughs) something and I got to write that down and go redact it. You know what I mean? So it is a little bit of a conflict, but I think it's cool that people will hold our feet to the fire, so to speak. Absolutely. People are listening and we appreciate that. And yeah, if you have any concerns about anything we say on the show, you know, please uh, hit us up on the forums or on social media and we'll be glad to address those. All right. uh, Moving right along, let's go into the concert cast. Sean, you have any news? Did you sign us up for anything at the Mohawk while I'm there? No, unfortunately, nothing (laughs) yet. Uh, So I don't really have any concert news, and maybe as we get closer to your trip, Rich, we can look for something at a a local bar to go see, Uh, but nothing nothing big on the calendars just yet. I wanted to ask you, though, do you listen to music to get you hyped up before we record? (laughs) No, no, I actually don't, Uh, unless the uh, screaming of my two-year-old is considered music to someone's ears. Oh, boy. I just asked a question mostly because I don't have anything for this segment, but also just because I do. I use music as a way to kind of map my emotions at any given time. And when I'm excited to record, or better yet, if I'm not so excited to record, (laughs) I'll put on some hype music to get the blood pumping and just to feel the power and the energy So I'm sitting with my iPod a couple minutes ago, just skip, 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 22,000 tracks, skip, 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 come on, give me something good, give me, give me me something good, give me the power. (laughs) The power by Snap? I don't think I I have that on, that's a great track. (laughs) 
No, <laughs> yes, so the is. two that came up were uh, Jump by Van Halen. I mean, come on. If, if you want not Chris Cross, disappointed. Yeah, you're not going to skip that. And then uh, there's a song called Talking Body by Tove Lo. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's kind of like a pop singer. Her first album, Queen of the Cloud. I don't know if that's exactly her first album, but it's the album that put her on the map. So if anybody wants to correct me, I'm not saying it's her first album because I don't know, but it's the one that she broke into the mainstream with. Eggshells now, man. Eggshells. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she has a song, Talking Body. It's really good. The lyrics are a little bit racy, but I actually think that they're about committing to somebody. It is a little bit sexual, but there's a real like theme of commitment and just committing fully to another person. And it's a really cool song and it, it's very energetic and powerful. So that's what I have for the musical segment is just that I really like when I put the cans on before I plug into my microphone, I put my iPod on, I skip 50 to 100 to 150 songs just to find one or two good ones to get me energized or to keep me energized or get me even more energized <laughs> to get on the air with you. Well, cool, man. Uh, let's just uh, hold off on the uh, sexually explicit music before next recording since we're going to be in such close confinements. You know, That's true. Oh, man, that's going to be fun. I could put on something on, like, speakers or something, and we'll dance and sing together. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, concert cast news for me. I have picked up some tickets recently, and as usual, I have to talk in a quieter voice because I'm always picking up stuff for my significant other. Mother's Day's next week, right? I also told you that my daughter's birthday is tomorrow, and so to kind of coincide with it, for Mother's Day, I'm getting my wife two tickets to see Hart and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, who my wife and my daughter both love, and I thought that would just be like a cool kind of like girls outing uh, while I watch the boys. That's awesome. My wife is a huge fan of Joan Jett and has seen her and met her in person, which is really cool. So That is very cool, man. And then the other tickets, which I haven't pulled the trigger on, but I attempted to pull the trigger on, <laughs> were to go see the B-52s, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, or more commonly known as OMD, and Berlin. They're all playing together, and I thought that would be a fantastic show. It's local, going to take the wife and the kids to that one, all four of us. And uh, so I get on Ticketmaster to order tickets, and uh, tickets are like $24.99, which is pretty awesome good. for that lineup. Yep. And it's a smaller venue, which is nice. It'll be um, you know more personable, and we'll be on the lawn, which will be cool, especially with kids. It's just easier. But the thing was, when I get to checkout, my bill is like 160 something dollars. And I'm like, wait a minute. It should be like under a hundred bucks, right? For $25 tickets or just over a hundred bucks, I guess, with service charges and things like that. And then I start looking and I've got like 50 something dollars worth of service charges. Damn. And I'm just like, that's completely ridiculous. So luckily this show is local. So what we'll do is we'll just go over to the Coliseum 
we have a, a small amphitheater, which is where they're playing, and then we have a large coliseum, but you go to the coliseum box office, and you can get tickets and save on service charges. And, you know, I've saved like 30-something dollars in the past on circus tickets for my kids, but uh, I just thought that was ridiculous. I mean, there's no point in paying 50-something dollars extra for tickets to a show that's $24. It's crazy. Yeah, that's a bit much, but luckily you are able to go get them in person, so... That's good. Yeah, I am fortunate for that. Or uh, I think either way, what I would have probably just jumped on that grenade anyway to see those three bands. So that's going to be a great show, and I can't wait to report back on yeah. it. So, yeah, cool. it'll be fun. All right, man. Well, I've got written down on the outline movies and TV. As you know, with my three kids, uh, the wife and I don't get to go out very much and see any movies. But since we last spoke... I've gone out to two movies. Now, she went to one of them with me. The other, we couldn't find a sitter because it was a particularly busy weekend. But I saw two movies. And then also, she and I had been picking up on a TV show. So I just wanted to mention those. Of course, everyone who listens probably knows that I'm a big fan of horror films. So I got to see the new Pet Cemetery movie and also the new Jordan Peele film. Many of you probably know he did Get Out, which was a big success. I got to see the new film, Us. Both films I quite enjoyed a great deal. So um, if there are any horror fans out there listening, please go and see those. Of course, Pet Cemetery is a remake of the 1980s classic, which, you know, I typically do not like remakes. I don't care for them and just kind of feel like people don't have good enough ideas of their own. But this one was really well done. Uh, the original is a bit hokey. And so this one was more serious. And what they did was they took certain parts of the old one and they flipped a few things around on their head so you would have these certain expectations of something happening and you would just kind of get twist ended by it which I thought was a great great move on their part and kind of a way of making this film although very similar to the original their own that sounds awesome I will probably see it when it's digital I liked the original. Uh, who's that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> who's that? Uh, oh, What's the name of the old guy, the the Munsters guy who was in? Yeah, Herman Munster. I can't think of his oh, name. Oh man, we suck. Corrections. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that first movie is pretty corny, uh, but good. And you never forget the scene where the guy's ankle gets slashed by the scalpel. God, ugh. Yeah. You can't unsee that. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, if you haven't seen Pet Cemetery, the new one, please do yourself a favor. Do not watch any of the trailers. I've seen a few of them, and a few of them were really good. But there's one trailer in particular that has spoilers in it. And you know how I was talking about how they kind of flip things around on their head? It gives away like the two biggest things that they do that with in the trailer. And I hate that so much. I can't understand why they did that. It takes away so much. And I'm so glad that I did not see that trailer until I went to go see the movie Us, which was the second film that I saw. So uh, have you seen Us or you heard anything about it, Sean? I haven't seen Us. I, I do want to throw in real quick that Fred Gwynn is the actor who played Herman Munster. 
Yes, um, that's it. So I didn't see us, and I ne- I've never seen Get Out, but you know, you bring up an interesting point. There's this whole thing about, I'm going to go on a little bit of a digression in a rabbit hole, this whole thing about spoilers and avoiding spoilers. So I generally try to avoid spoilers unless there's something that I think, I'll never see this, I don't care. And then what I'll do is if some YouTuber who I like puts out a video about it, I would rather watch the YouTube video. And I went ahead and watched a spoiled review of us. And I've heard it said that sometimes when you have something spoiled for you, it can make it more interesting and more intriguing and you can actually get more enjoyment out of it. So I will say that having it spoiled, I'm way more interested in actually seeing it (laughs) than I was initially. And I I won't spoil it, but (laughs) I will say my chances of actually seeing the movie Us increased by watching a full-on spoiled review of it. So there you go. I can definitely understand that. And I think with Jordan Peele's films, there's always this twist. I mean, it's not a secret. I'm not spoiling anything by saying that. There's always a big twist. And apparently, you know what I know about the film and what the twist is now. But you bring up a good point in that it's the kind of film where you watch one time. And then after you know what the twist is, you want to watch it again to go back through it and see if you pick up on certain things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I think you're actually getting sort of that second viewing before having the first view. Oh, that's a really good insight. That's a great point. When it comes out, I'm going to have to go buy it because I want to see it again and see if, you know, there's certain things that I pick up on. But you'll be doing sort of a second viewing of it, which will be interesting. I'll definitely want to hear your thoughts on it after you see it. Awesome. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about was the television series that my wife and I have been watching, and that is Scream Queens. It's a dark comedy slasher. It's really funny in parts, and the writing is so good. Jamie Lee Curtis is involved in it, and I can't think of the girl's name who plays the main character, or one of the main characters, but it's Julia Roberts, Emma Roberts, who I think is Julia Roberts' niece. So it takes place on the college campus and there's this guy dressed in a devil suit that is murdering people. And so it's just a whodunit kind of thing, slasher. One of the things that's rough about it is that the episodes are a bit long. Uh, they're usually about an hour or more, which, you know, in series, that is kind of tough because it doesn't make me want to jump back in and watch the next episode because I know it's going to take a long time, especially when it's late at night. When I can get like 25 to 30 minute installments, I always feel like it's much better. So it has that against it. And then the other thing is, is that the story kind of unravels a bit toward the end of the first season. And I'm having trouble making it through the rest of it. The writing, it's still really good, but it, you know, just that comical writing, that dark humor, it just gets to be a little too much as the show gets more and more abstract. I don't know. Have you ever seen anything like that or kind of understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, I get it. There are things that don't end in a tidy way, and you can see that there are other things, like something like a TV series, where you can sense that this cannot end in a tidy way, or it's going off the rails in slow motion kind of thing. So do you think you're going to stick with it and finish it, or are you just going to bail on it? I'm going to finish the first season. I want to give it that much, and you know, I still want to know who the killer is. Mm -hmm. 
but I've heard there's a second season, and obviously it did not get good reviews because I think they were ill-prepared to do a second season. And so it kind of caught them by surprise that it caught on, and I've heard the second season isn't worth watching. So I don't know if I will watch that second season or not. But I'll tell you this, the premise is good. I definitely think you should check it out and watch a few episodes of it to see if it's something you would like because it's very funny. It takes place on the college campus and uh, sororities and fraternities are involved. And it's just slapstick, just kind of goofy, kind of poking fun of those institutions. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it a lot up to a certain point, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. What is it on? What are you streaming it from? Uh, I am streaming that one, I believe, through Hulu. I think I've gotten that one through Hulu. It could be Amazon Prime, could be Netflix. I'm pretty positive it's not Netflix, but those are the three streaming services that we are subscribed to, so it has to be on one of the three. (laughs) So, sorry, I can't clarify that more. No, that's all good. Well, I've been watching this really cool anime with my wife, and I think a lot of our listeners might be already clued into it, but I do know that some people are just totally not into anime. So I will say if you're listening to us, you're probably into video games. And if you're into video games, even if you're not sure about anime, I highly recommend the show High Score Girl. I'm currently watching it on Netflix in the United States. So I don't know what else, what other services it's on, but that's what I'm watching it on. It's about this young man who's obsessed with video games and a girl that he befriends who has a superhuman skill level of playing video games. And he's really impressed by her. Uh, But she's very quiet and aloof and hard to get a read on. She almost has no speaking lines in in the entire show. But what's really cool about the show is that almost in the way that Ready Player One was, it's super super fan servicey and referential about video games and there's even just tons of straight up footage of the games that they're playing and it's set i believe in the 90s when these games were coming out so like the first couple of episodes are really hard into street fighter 2 and they go into like techniques and the moves and all the the animations and the history of of the game being developed and coming out they jam all of this awesome like referential game trivia into this story and it's just comes out as this like very dense but still very entertaining and easy to watch and uh you you got to check this out rich i think you would like it a lot of course because it's it's very much about video games awesome yeah i'll definitely have to check that one out definitely right up my alley you know with the uh, video game references and and all that so uh yeah yeah and then There was a film that I wanted to shout out on our last show, and I just totally forgot about it and forgot to put it on the notes. But as of now, it's the most recent movie I saw in a theater. And I think it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. And it's definitely one of the best movies I've seen in like the past 10 years as far as like English language films. And that is The Favorite, which was the movie about Queen Anne that came out last year and it happened to get a screening at the Alamo Draft House one weekend and I took my wife to go see it and 
we were just floored by it. It's directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. He did uh, mm-hmm. Dogtooth and The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Out of his movies, I've only seen Dogtooth. Have you seen any of those other ones? I have not seen any of those other films. I've heard of the third one that you mentioned, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, so having only seen Dogtooth, Dogtooth is a movie that is... It's just weird and disturbing, and I don't ever want to see it again. So when I went into (laughs) The Favorite, I had some reservations. Like, I didn't know what to expect based on my only other experience with the director. But I thought, okay, this was more of a mainstream movie. It got a lot of hype, a lot of buzz. It can't be that bad. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. It turns out, it, it like I said, it was one of the best movies I've ever seen. The script is one of those things that, as you're watching the movie, you're realizing every single line that is spoken by a character in this movie can be taken like three different ways. And there's so much subtext going on in the words that are being spoken that like my mind was just going like just trying to read between the lines of everything that was said and all these like really intense conversations which is kind of funny because it's it's really not a super serious movie it's almost like a black comedy it's very funny at times but there was an intensity to the script that I really, really loved. It just came off as like, it was a cut above as far as the intelligence of the script. And then of course it was, you know, it's a period drama, so everything is just really beautiful and well shot. So I gotta go and highly recommend The Favorite. Again, I'm, I have reservations and trepidations about watching this guy's other films, but I really now wanna go back and watch The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, so. Okay. Sounds good, man. I definitely know of the film. It was one that was not on my radar and I just kind of brushed aside because I don't really care for a lot of historical stuff. I'm more of a fiction guy than a nonfiction guy, but uh, it sounds really, really interesting and definitely sounds like something that I would want to check out. So I definitely will do that once it comes over to uh, some streaming platform. Awesome. Well, speaking of movies, last podcast, we said that we would talk about two animes, and one of those was Ninja Scroll, and the other was Perfect Blue. Well, we think that maybe one a show is enough, so we decided to go with Perfect Blue this time, since we've hyped it up so much, and we'll save Ninja Scroll for another month. Yeah, this was one I was really excited to revisit, and definitely when the Blu-ray came out, you and I jumped right on that one. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we talk about new releases, and I always say, I don't get excited for new releases, I don't care, you know, in regards to video games. But this was one, I mean, anime fans and people who know about Satoshi Kon's work, we know that Perfect Blue is such an elusive thing to get, as will... We'll hear one of our friends explain a little bit deeper in a second. But uh, when that Blu-ray got announced, like I couldn't click Amazon to pre-order it fast (laughs) enough because it's like, finally, I can have this in my collection. (laughs) So Perfect Blue revolves around a girl named Mima who is in a Japanese pop band. Soon into it, you realize that Mima is being contacted by people who 
direct films and is wanting to maybe try her hand at acting. And so while trying her hand at acting, she decides that she doesn't want to be a pop star anymore and doesn't want to have to deal with the things that go along with that and wants to instead become a movie star. And so I think here in America, what we really don't know about Japanese culture is how excessive pop culture is over there. And this movie is sort of a reflection of the hardships and the things that Japanese pop stars go through. And as far as this transition into acting, it just kind of involves this sort of what I would call like a downward spiral. And it gets a little crazy, right, Sean? Sometimes you don't know what's real and what's not real, right? Yeah, absolutely. The phrase downward spiral is a really good way to put it. Things start to unravel almost within the first couple of minutes of the movie, as a matter of fact. I do want to mention that Perfect Blue, the film, is based on a novel called Perfect Blue Complete Metamorphosis by Yoshikazu Takauchi. I have read this book, and I will say this is one of the rare instances where not only is the film better than the book, but the film is leagues and leagues and orders of magnitude better than the book. Not to say the book is not worth reading. It's not a completely different story, but it's a different story, and the film takes it to amazing new levels. So I just want to throw that out there. And I also was curious, did you watch the documentary that was recommended to us, that Tokyo Idol on Netflix? No, I did not have a chance to watch that, unfortunately, but it's something that's on my list and something I definitely want to check out. Okay, I I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I actually did watch it and I would second the recommendation we got. It was very interesting because it actually follows what seems to be a more small-time performer named Rio It almost reminded me, and the reference was made to punk rock, that it seemed like playing shows. I mean, I used to be in a band when I was a kid, and a lot of what was going on, and now this is in Japan, this is a pop idol, and she's riding her bike to a show to perform in front of like 12 people. And it was like, this is really familiar to me, you know, from being in a band when I was a kid. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Now, they did touch on how big the culture is there with a little footage of uh, AKB48, which is this huge group. And I didn't even realize they have like elections to find new members for AKB48. And it's this big like televised thing. So that was that was really interesting. And then the other thing that was part of the documentary that really plays into getting back to Perfect Blue, are the fans. And there's this vague level of creepiness to the fans, for lack of a better word. I mean, just think of the word idol and where it comes from. You know, the Bible warns us against false idols because there is an element of worship. And when we have idols on earth, there can be danger, there can be threatening nature to the relationship between the idols and those who worship them. And this wasn't a true crime documentary. It's just a fun thing. But you could see these men who are fans of these women and sometimes very young women 
it's on the precipice of being disturbing. Now, mm-hmm. if you take that and put the pedal all the way down to the floor and push that disturbingness to the extreme, you get Perfect Blue, the film. That's true. So it was really interesting watching the documentary Tokyo Idol and then reviewing Perfect Blue for like the 50th time uh, (laughs) to have some more real world context of the nature of the idol culture. Yeah, it seems like the perfect compliment to watch with the film. Speaking of perfect compliments, the person that we asked to do a short segment is our good buddy Tom at the Pocky X on Twitter. And I think he's going to tell you a little bit about his other projects that he does. But I couldn't think of anyone that I would rather have comment on Perfect Blue than Tom. Absolutely. Let's hear what he has to say. Hello, I'm Tom, a.k.a. The Pocky X, and I was asked here because I'm a massive weeb, and this is my three-minute chat about Perfect Blue. But before I chat about that, I'm going to throw in that you can follow me on Twitter at The Pocky X, where it is a link to my Instagram, because I'm apparently also an artist, though you'd never know it anymore, because all I do is retweet anime memes and announce when I pet dogs. I also do an unhinged comedy podcast with my friend Flocky called The Pocky Flocky Show. If you're interested in that, you can check it out by going to PockyFlocky.com. The first time I saw Perfect Blue was not actually that long ago. I knew it by reputation, but getting your hands on a copy was impossible without shelling out massive amounts of money or buying it on UMD. Both unacceptable. Finally, I managed to see a totally legally obtained copy for real, and it blew my mind. There are anime movies with beautiful animation that tell a story that you could tell with pretty much any animation style, but Perfect Blue uniquely fits to the director Satoshi Kon's technique of using animation to blur the boundaries of reality. Even though it's a movie from 1997 based on a book from 1991, the story has only become more relevant. What was once a super-specific story about the perils of Japanese idol lifestyle has branched out and become a story about control over our own avatars, be it on the small scale where we must measure our sense of self versus the personality we put on display over social media, or even internet entertainers dealing with the same degree of scrutiny and obsession that was once very reserved for the rich and famous. Perfect Blue has gone from a horror story targeting a lifestyle that was once previously out of reach and is now painfully relevant to us all. So, you asked me to chat about how it ranks against other anime, but I feel like Perfect Blue, as well as Satoshi Kon, stand alone so well that ranking it would almost feel insignificant. Instead, I'm going to recommend you some other content that, if you enjoy Perfect Blue, will keep you driving down the rabbit hole of shows that twist the boundaries between realities. First up is Tokyo Idol. If you understand on a deeper level where the driving narrative of Perfect Blue comes from, you need to see this documentary available on U.S. Netflix called Tokyo Idol gives you a behind-the-scenes look at Japanese idol culture, which drives performances and the more horrifying implications of its existence. Another con film that uses the same animation techniques present in Perfect Blue is Millennium Actress. But instead of using them as a means of building horror tensions, it's used to tell a heartfelt biography journey through the life of an actress. I also highly recommend the anime called Another. 
back into the realm of horror. Another is a classic tale of a cursed town. If you're into J-horror like Juan the Grudge, Ringu, or the works of Junji Ito, another is a modern take on this timeless horror setup. And finally, I need as many people to see Bacchano as possible. It's not horror, but it's a big surreal story packed nicely into a 1930s American period piece. The less you know going in, the better. And the English dub is fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Tom, for your thoughts on Perfect Blue. As usual, you delivered. <laughs> Such a good uh, explanation of what's going on in that movie and how you can really contextualize it with what's going on today. And also, thank you so much for the recommendations. Definitely a few films that I wouldn't mind checking out, especially the ones with a bit of a horror twist to them. So that should be really nice. Yeah, definitely. There are some things he recommended that I have not seen there as well. And I do want to throw out that all of Satoshi Kon's films are amazing. And Perfect Blue is, of course, a disturbing horror thriller, but he has a film called Tokyo Godfathers, which is one of the most heartwarming and beautiful stories that you could ever see, as well as paprika also like a sci-fi fantasy he really in his career covered all the emotions and genres uh that anime kind of has to offer and now we did get a couple tweets about perfect blue when the blu-ray was coming out i tweeted my excitement about it and just asked anybody does anybody have any thoughts on perfect blue so justin jackson at zalmute said depressing uh, that could be true in a certain sense, so thanks yeah, for that. for sure. And then our good friend, uh, Metal Fro, he said, the English dub of the film is great and haters can go suck a lemon. Well. Lemons. <laughs> I have to say, I, I'm sure I've seen the English dub before, but this time then I, that I watched it most recently, I did watch the Japanese dub. I do want to say that Hating on dubs, and even Pocky X just mentioned a good English dub in his recommendations. Hating on dubs is such a weird thing, especially for someone like me. I've gone to many anime conventions and met a bunch of English voice actors, and they come in and do panels, and yet everybody kind of turns their back and is snobbish and gatekeeping about watching subs only. Meanwhile, we say we love these English voice actors, and it's just a kind of weird gatekeeping thing. And if you enjoy watching a dub, any dub, whether it's a good one, like Josh is saying Perfect Blue is, or a completely terrible dub, and you just don't like reading stuff on the screen because you'd rather see what's going on, then do whatever you enjoy. It's like playing games on an easy difficulty or a much harder difficulty. You are the one consuming the media. The media is there to please you. You are your own gatekeeper. Oh, man, that's really good. You are your own gatekeeper. Rich, I love that. That is brilliant. You can't use it. It's already copyrighted. <laughs> is that from something? No, I'm stamping oh, good. it right Dude, now. Dude, let's put it on some t-shirts. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, so just what an incredible, incredible film. Yeah, definitely check it out. One worth watching. In bed, stay in bed. The feeling of your skin locked in my head. Small.
smoke, smoke me broke I don't care, I'm down for what you want Day drunk into the night Wanna keep you here Cause you dry my tears roll into some news this was a particularly interesting last month sean as there were three console announcements from the three heavy hitters one of those was the xbox one s digital edition it was retail priced at around 250 dollars which i know a lot of people were complaining about now with this xbox the one thing that I do know is that it's going to be all digital. There's not going to be a drive for a, a DVD or Blu-ray. And so it's basically just going to be a download-only type system, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Even the console itself is an, it's an Xbox One S identically, except for it doesn't have the slot for the disc. <laughs> so... Yeah, and I'm not sure like if it has more memory or not. I would assume that that's something that they should probably consider adding to it just because everything's going to be downloadable. And I just want to mention, first of all, like we heard about these announcements, but Sean or I have not done a lot of research into them. We don't know the specifics of them. So if we misspeak on something or get something wrong, you know, please let us know. But we're not going to get into that part of it. We'll probably just give our opinions on them as far as what we've seen and what we know about the consoles. So uh, how do you feel about this one, Sean? You know, with the Xbox 
I think they kind of screwed up with the price because you can actually buy a Xbox One S with the game. I think one YouTuber I was watching pointed out that there's a bundle for sale that is the same exact price as this all digital thing. And that's not to say that it's not worth getting because of that. That's just the technicality. But I mean, I guess it raises the question what value do you put on physical media being able to be played? <laughs> yeah. And of course, this rings memories of the PSP Go, you know? Mm, yeah. There seem to be pretty few, as far as consoles go, digital download only devoted consoles. So it's interesting that they went this way. And I think. You know, we're not going to talk about it, but the Google Stadia announcement, we are just, Uh, we're slowly stepping into that all digital future. And, you know, I already have an Xbox One S. I have a bunch of physical games for it. I also have a ton of download games for it. But the thing is, this thing will be a paperweight in 10 or 15 years because the Xbox One digital store will be gone, just like the Weave, you know, eShop is gone. And, uh, you know, Disposed Hero just recently put out a review of the rebuild games that you can't purchase legally on the Wii anymore. And it's only a matter of time before the Xbox One store is in that state. I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I'm guessing this thing, if it's identical to the Xbox One S, if I remember correctly, has a USB slot. So maybe you could watch movies on it if you have them on a thumb drive or stream some other kind of thing. And by then, I'm sure the system will be hacked rather quickly and you know we'll eventually get custom firmware for the xbox one i know that's a little bit slow going right now but but yeah i used to be super super physical only and now i'm i'm yeah. not at all so this thing doesn't rankle me as much as it does some other people <laughs> but hand up i think it's i just think it's kind of weird that they didn't make any concessions for pricing they just said here's a different version of our product at the same exact price that has one huge feature removed so that's just that's the one thing that strikes me as kind of odd with it yeah i agree i think the price point is way too much you know for what it is it is basically a hard drive that you hook to your tv like a plug and play that you can download things on it doesn't worry me i don't think it's going to take off i don't think that this is the system that's going to make the other companies say okay we have to go digital only now so while it doesn't frighten me i've always said that once we go to pure digital gaming my collecting is going to be over which i mean there's nothing physical it has to be over right there's <laughs> there's really uh no question to that but uh i just think that if that happens i'll just be satisfied with what's in front of me and you know not really get into modern gaming anymore now can you clarify i actually thought that you were not like a staunch physical only you've downloaded things before right a handful of things. Okay. You know, if I feel like it's something that I can't get a physical copy of or someone like Limited Run's not going to do a run of or I can't get a, you know, physical, I know Play Asia does some stuff as well. 
if I feel like it's something that's never going to come out, like I'm getting ready to download Unfinished Swan because I've heard so many good things about it and it gets into a game that I actually played mm-hmm. <laughs> this past month, but I'll talk about later. But uh, yeah, I'm not staunchly against it. I, you know, see its value, see its place. It definitely is a cheaper way to transfer media and, you know, it benefits the companies, it benefits indie titles and things of that nature. So, you know, I like that end of it, but like most things in my life, you know, my video games, my uh, vinyl collection, my DVD Blu-ray collection, I really like to have those tactile things in my hands. You know, I can't even read a book on an e-reader. I have to have a physical book in my hands. Um, and I feel like that's something that's going to be slipping away and, you know, something probably my grandkids won't know about down the road. So, uh, yeah, that does kind of bother me a bit. You know, it's funny. I'm slowly becoming the opposite to the point where I would have said the same thing about books in particular, but now I prefer by a strong margin reading on my Kindle and to the point where sometimes I will own a book and I will get it on my Kindle to read it because it's way more enjoyable for me that way. It's more convenient and, you know, you don't have to lug things around. It's flat. It looks nice. My wife has one. I've looked at it before. It looks just like a page. You know, the way they have it backlit is fantastic. You can hold it in one hand without worrying about dropping your bookmark into your coffee cup. And Yeah, that's true. I used to try to read on a Kindle. Like I had to kind of force myself to get into it. And now I've completely transitioned to that's my preferred way, like strongly (laughs) to, to read. But yeah, yeah, I appreciate you clarifying that because we have friends who, man, I, I wonder if they even update their games. I wonder if any of their consoles are connected to the internet or if they have the internet in their homes sometimes the way our <laughs> friends talk. That's okay. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. I just wanted to make sure I knew which camp you were in. And, it, and it's, as both of us can demonstrate, it, it's not a binary thing for most of us. It's not a physical only, digital only. For me, it's a complete blend, especially like with the Wii. You're not going to keep me away from those games, you know? I have a hacked Wii, and if you're not going to give them to me legally where I can give you my hard-earned money for those games, then that's too bad. I'm going to find a way to play them, you know? So uh, I'm in between, and I download plenty of games, and I love my PlayStation Plus and my Xbox Gold and all that, you know? Even the Nintendo uh, online service, which I now have, and I can play these amazing NES games that I've never heard of before, like Punch-Out! and Super Mario 3. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, like most things in life, I'm pretty much called in the middle. You know, I don't usually take a black or a white stance on anything. You know, I'm usually in the middle somewhere on almost anything in my life because I can see the pros and cons of each, you know. And uh, But I, I think I am more, as far as a collector, on the physical side. As far as playing games, I don't know, maybe, but I feel like with the collection my size, I've pretty much got enough to play for the rest of my life and uh, won't need to go that direction. But yeah, it's definitely something I feel like is coming, but uh, you know, if it's going to be in the next few years, uh, I don't know. Speaking of, Sony has announced that they are putting out the 
PlayStation 5. And I don't think they've given a timeline for that. It could be years out, but uh, we do know that that is coming, right? There actually hasn't been any announcements. What happened was, I think it was Mark Cerny did an interview with Wired Magazine, and it was very, like kind of sanctioned, you know, that Wired would kind of put (laughs) out some information about Sony's next console. I think at this point, we don't even know if it's officially called the PlayStation 5, but they were just talking about some of the technology that will be involved with it. And it seems like, as with most things, if you know your technicals, you could probably guess most of the stuff that they were going to say was in this interview. Uh, so, <laughs> better graphics. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> More space. Yeah. I mean, they just feed us a little bit at a time each time they release a console when they could give us the whole enchilada if they wanted to, but where's the business sense or the money behind that, right? Right. One thing that is important for me is that they have confirmed that the current existing PlayStation VR rigs will work with this new console. So that's great news for people like me because I don't know if I'm going to invest in another VR rig. Like I like the one that I have. And even if they do like some super duper graphical upgrade, like I'm okay with what I got. It's almost like having a Game Boy Advance and like imagine if there's all these new things, PSPs and Vitas and 3DS and you could just say, no, I really like my Game Boy Advances when it comes to portable. I don't want to pay any more money for new shit. So (laughs) that's where I am with my uh, my uh, standard PlayStation VR rig at the moment, you know. I gotcha, man. As far as the PS5 news is, for me, I'm not going to pick it up on launch day like a lot of people do. I never buy consoles on launch day. So, you know, for me, it's just a blip on the screen that I expected at some point anyway. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at on that. And then the third thing was, um, of course, Nintendo had mentioned the Switch Mini as a console that's coming out. So what do you think about that, Sean? Uh, potentially, depending on what it is and what it looks like and when it comes out and all this other stuff, we don't know anything about it yet, but I'm going to say something very controversial. Here's a hot take on the Nintendo Switch. Are you ready? Here it comes. The Nintendo Switch, as it is today, is not portable. Okay. Okay. And what I mean by that, it's a huge thing. Compared to a PSP, a Vita, a Game Boy Advance, it doesn't fit in my pocket. It doesn't fit under my stand at my desk. It's this mm-hmm. huge thing for a portable console and to even any case you want to get for it. Now, they do make ones that are like super form-fitting and it's like a flat little thing. But still, it's as big as the Switch is itself. I think this is the reason that I hardly ever play my Switch, because if there's a game that I'm willing to play on the TV, I can play it on any of the other 50 million consoles that I have. And when I want something portable, the Switch is like the last thing I'm going to go to grab when I'm about to head out for work. I'm going to go for my Vitas, my PSPs, my 3DSs. So I really, really would love a Nintendo Switch that has a form factor similar to a PlayStation Vita or similar to, say, like a new 3DS. You know, if it's some kind of flip clamshell thing with the controls underneath it, obviously it it doesn't have to be two screens because the Switch has only one screen. But Nintendo's very creative with this kind of stuff, as we've seen traditionally. So... 
Out of all the stuff we're talking about here is console announcements. This one is the most intriguing and potentially exciting for me because I, I like the Switch a lot. I like the software, but I hardly play it because I always default to other things when I want to play a game. Yeah, understood. Well, it's going to be very interesting. And I think when this announcement came out, I sent you a message and I said, do you think this is the end of the DS era for Nintendo? And uh, you had some pretty strong opinions about that, I know. Well, it's funny that right after you messaged me that, a couple of days later, Nintendo made this really vague and ambiguous announcement about there are no 3DS games scheduled for the next month or something like that. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, the 3DS is dead, finally. And it's like, I don't understand that mode of thinking. Why would you want a console to die, especially one that's as awesome as the 3DS? Like, right. the 3DS has so many good games. And I don't buy into the thing that, like, if people are developing for the 3DS, there won't be development for the Switch. It's not a pie that there are slices coming out of. There's only so many resources out there. There's only so many developers, so many people making games. But it's hard to explain. Like, I just don't understand this mode of thinking that, like, old console is old. Stop making games for it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. I don't get it, and I, I, I don't like it. I tweeted out, more games on more platforms is always and everywhere a good thing. That's true. No doubt. Yeah, I don't think it's the end of the DS era, and I think there will be a new DS coming out at some point within the next several years. I think that the handheld system in itself is such a big hit, especially with kids, you know, and, you know, even adults like us who take it to work or, you know, travel to work. So I think that's still there. However, you know, there are a lot of phone games out there. And I definitely see my kids getting more and more addicted to phone games over the 3DSs that they have. So there is that. But I definitely think there'll be at least one more iteration of the DS before they shut things down. And I'm sure that this mini is a bit of a way for them to maybe test the waters a little bit. That is where we're going to part ways. I, I think <laughs> that Nintendo is probably done with the DS. They've done so many iterations of the 3DS, including a slab 2DS and then a clamshell 2DS. And then, I mean, where do they go from there? What I'm hoping, again, is that they kind of morph the convenience of the DS and 3DS into the technology and the software library of the Switch and that we see a marriage of the two. So uh, it's funny, you messaged me like Nintendo is sitting on a gold mine with the DS those weren't your exact words, but that was a sentiment. And yeah. now I know what you meant. But at the time, I was like, that has to be the like most understated ex facto <laughs> argument I've ever heard in my life because the DS sold like 150 million units. So it's like, yeah, they're sitting on a little bit of a gold mine. But, but now I understand what you mean by that, like that they should continue to make them, which it's fair. But if I was going to bet dollars to donuts, I think it is their sunsetting the hell out of it. All right. So their next handheld release would that be a 
day one buy for you if they had DSVR? Oh, do you mean the sw- <laughs> like DSVR? Like yeah, DSVR, like man. Putting a DS like one screen on each eye <laughs> that would be pretty neat. Like I could probably do that now. Like just put a, a headband around a DS, just smashed against my face. I'm gonna Link try em. that. <laughs> All right, man, enough tomfoolery here. Let's go ahead and get into our pickups. And since I'm hosting this month, Sean, I'm going to let you go first. Oh, man, this is this is weird. Okay, I don't know where to begin. Actually, I know exactly where to begin because I got one of the coolest T-shirts I've ever seen in my mailbox. Do you know anything about this, Rich? I may know a few things about that shirt. So look, man, I'm a big t-shirt guy. I collect t-shirts as passionately as I collect video games. And I have sports teams, I got anime, I got movies, I got video games, everything on my t-shirts, you know? I want to go out in the world with confidence. I love my t-shirts. The one thing that was severely and obviously missing from my t-shirt collection was a Godzilla t-shirt. And now I'm a huge Godzilla fan, and I've looked for literally years for a good Godzilla shirt. I actually bought one a couple years ago. It had a cool little cartoon design on it. I got the shirt, and it just fit me weird. It fit me like a woman's t-shirt. I gave it away. I didn't, you know, I was just like, ah, man, I can't even. And then like all the other designs I've seen of Godzilla shirts, I just didn't like them. Then you messaged me this picture of you wearing this shirt that I could not believe how awesome it looked. (laughs) Yeah, it's really cool. I wore it yesterday, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's just this awesome neon. It has the uh, Katakana logo that says Gojira. And it has the Heisei era Godzilla, which is my favorite. And it's just neon colored. It's loud. It's bright. It's beautiful. It's just like... All the things I love about Godzilla, like the right kind of Godzilla, et cetera, et cetera, all on this beautiful black t-shirt. So anyway, you said it's this much at GameStop. Do you want one? I said, hell yeah, I want one. Now I have that shirt. So that's how I'm kicking off my scores. That was a really good one, and I appreciate you going out and getting that for me. Oh, yeah, man. Happy to do it. As soon as I saw it, I thought of you. I was like, I know Sean may be interested in this. I'm definitely (laughs) getting one for myself because I did not have any Godzilla shirts either. And uh, it's funny, I I told you that I wore it yesterday and it was my daughter's birthday party. So I'm meeting parents for the first time wearing a neon Godzilla shirt. So I can only (laughs) imagine what they think of me. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to get into my pickups and still I continue this flagrant haphazard spending of (laughs) any money that comes into my PayPal from selling off stuff on eBay. And I do have a little bit of a story. I'll try to get through it briefly. It has to do with hacking. And I, I know some of our listeners care about it. Some don't. So if you don't just, you can glaze over this part, but I have a hacked Wii, and part of the hacking of the Wii is that you can run into errors if you try to play certain eShop games off your SD card. 
And there's a way to fix this by downloading one of the operating systems and then patching it. The Wii has kind of many different operating systems that control different things within the Wii. And to get all games to run off your SD card without any errors, you have to patch iOS 80, right? So I went online, read tutorials, got this program on my computer, got a patched iOS 80, put it on my Wii, amazing everything plays everything off the sd card plays great success i was so happy so then i go on my wii u and i'm thinking oh i should do the same thing right so i take (laughs) the patched ios that i had made and threw it on the wii u installed it virtual wii doesn't work anymore i bricked it there are ways to fix it but they're way over my head technically so the Wii U itself is fine, like the, the Wii U software, all the games and everything, all that stuff works fine, but the virtual Wii within that Wii U is bricked. It won't, if you try to open it, the Wii U just freezes and you have to literally unplug it to get out of it. Mm. So I was just like, meh. I was annoyed because I was playing a game that I was really deep into on that virtual Wii on that Wii U and I lost, you know, I can't go back into it and I'm not going to start the game over. But that was like the worst thing about it. I didn't brick like a system. I just bricked the Wii within this Wii U. So blah, blah, blah. But what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I bet you can guess what that made me think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure it was, man, I probably need to get another one of these. There you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> so of course, as soon as I realized I had an imperfect Wii U, I started looking for a new Wii U. I looked just like Buddy Holly. So <laughs> I went on eBay and I actually saw it as an opportunity to upgrade because the first Wii U I had was one of the white 8 gig models so I looked to upgrade to one of the black 32 gig models and I got it from a guy who was really cool and he showed me a whole bunch of things I didn't know about hacking with the Wii U and sent me a bunch of games like actual physical games not like he didn't send me any games on it like I had to do that myself but um I put a two terabyte hard drive on it and now I got a really decked out pimped out Wii U that I'm being super careful with and not throwing any Wii operating systems on the virtual Wii because you cannot do that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I have now two Wii U's just like Buddy Holly. I, I Sorry, I have to make that joke again. Um, <laughs> the other big score I'll, I'll just talk about in general is that I reset the game room that is in the room that I'm in right now. So I have three setups. One's in my living room with a 55-inch flat-screen TV. One's in where my game room is, which is where I have the projector that I've written and spoken about. And one's in this room, which is where my computer is, and I have another gaming setup. And I don't take for granted for one second how fortunate, affluent, and wealthy that makes me feel. It's not lost on me how extravagant that is. 
But in this room, I had like a really crappy 20-inch tube TV. And it was hard for me to admit to myself that that tube TV was just done. The screen was really dark and it was discolored as if there was like a magnet up next to it. And even though I played many of our playthrough games on it, I even played Dragon Warrior on it recently. The user experience of playing anything on that TV was just not doing it for me. And it was just not enjoyable anymore. So I completely revamped the setup in here. I bought a 43-inch flat screen, real cheap off of Amazon. It cost me 150 bucks, And I just started from the ground up. So... I bought a VGA cable for my Dreamcast, and I put the Dreamcast on there. Uh, it had three HDMI ports, so I put this new Wii U, and I won't make the joke again, that I just got. <laughs> I put one of my PS3s on it, and I put my modded PS2 on it. And then there was one more port. Oh, yeah, the um, component cable port. I put an original Xbox on it. So I have some classic, not vintage, you know, I don't have a NES hooked up now at the moment or a Super NES, but I haven't played Dreamcast seriously in a very long time. I haven't played original Xbox seriously in a very long time. And they look fantastic on this television. So I'm transitioning a little bit from having that tube TV experience, having that old school like you know, trying to get the cartridge to work on an NES to having a more vintage state-of-the-art setup where I have a Dreamcast hooked up through a VGA cable to a really nice monitor. So it's kind of neat, and I'm enjoying uh, spending my time in here, and some of the what are you playing segment is going to play into that. As a recent pickup, I got a new game room. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, so that's it for me, man. What do you got? Well, I'm going to save a few of my pickups to talk about what you've been playing. I actually did play some games this month, so I'm excited to talk about those. But one of my first pickups I want to mention, I got a boxed copy of a Genesis game called Todd's Adventures in Slime World. This is one I found on Facebook Marketplace, so it was nearby. It was in the city next to me, and I wanted to meet the girl who was selling it, but... With kids and soccer and everything just going full blast right now and birthdays, I was like, okay, can you just mail it to me? She's like, yeah, for two bucks, I'll mail it to you. So I was like, fine, no big deal. I'm getting this game at a good price. So yeah, about three and a half weeks to a month later, I still don't have the game. So I'm having to basically just threaten her with action so she will send me the game. And finally, she does. And it was just a huge ordeal. I will not do that again. I have learned my lesson. Just meet someone at a shady McDonald's and make the exchange. (laughs) Nice. So um, the other thing I picked up locally at my uh, honey hole that I talk about quite a bit, I picked up a copy of Ogre Battle for the Super Nintendo for a very cheap price. Someone had used a thin red marker and written something on the front, which came off very easily with a little bit of alcohol, and so the label is very minty and looks brand new now, and probably saved about $50 on that game just because it had the mark on it, so I was very happy with that. And is that from the same store that you always go to? Yeah. That has a little marker on it? Man, 
come on, I'm going to call this place just to punk you out and be like, you know, you can get the marker off, you freaking morons. Like, <laughs> Don't do that. What if I find something I already have and you want it? You punk me out, you'd be punking yourself, dude. That's like, that's like if a car dealership was like, oh, th- this car has a dent. It's $100 now. Like, no, fix the dent, you morons. Like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. I think it's just like store policy. Like they have a certain amount that they price the games at. It's in their computer system. Okay. Sometimes those prices might be old and you get it for a good price. But if it has any type of damage to the label, I think that they're just like, no matter what it is, they're just going to reduce it to that reduced price that they have in the system. You know, hey, good for me. I don't have to have games that are absolutely minty and perfect. And, you know, sometimes. I can get them with something on it, and sometimes they'll think it's like a torn label, and it'll just be sticker residue. But they do not touch it themselves and further damage anything. I think that's just a you know store rule. So awesome. it works for me. I'm getting some good stuff. All right. Speaking of other good stuff, I picked up a few PS4 games. You'll be happy to know that I picked up near Automata. I'm very happy to hear that. I would love to play that maybe as a playthrough game. It's a little long for our purposes, but, okay, you know, we could stretch it out and do it. I, I think it would be awesome. All right. Well, maybe we can work that in at some point. I know that that game is really kind of a hot or cold title for a lot of people, so I'm definitely interested in something that I hear that news about, you know? I'm like, I got to see for myself. So yeah. I definitely wanted to pick that up when I could get it for under 20 bucks, and I did. And then I picked up from Limited Run Games, Bloodstained Curse of the Moon, which I am super, super happy about. I've heard so many great things about this game. As people know, the Bloodstained title that was kickstarted that has not come out yet had a stretch goal of an 8-bit game, which is basically like a Castlevania-type game. And it was released digitally. And so many people were ooing and eyeing over it that Limited Run decided to do a physical of it. And I am really, really happy to have a physical copy of that game and finally get to play it. And then for PS1, uh, again, you know, had another good month of PS1 collecting. I really love that system and not something I'd ever go for a complete set. But, you know, I'm really picking up the titles that I want to try out. Grabbed a cheap copy of RPG Maker, which I've never played, but sounds really cool. I grabbed a copy of Buster Brothers and Monkey Hero from a Facebook group. Guy was selling them at a really good price. And then the same Facebook group, I picked up a copy of Jumping Flash. And that is a long box Ridge copy of that game. Got that for a great price. And that's one that has really, really jumped up in value. And I think one of the things that made it jump possibly is the uh, PlayStation Mini that was put out. So I know that was included on there. And so I think it brought that game a little more to the attention of everyone. And then the final game that I picked up was a copy of a game that I had been looking for for a while. I had put an article a few years ago up on RF Generation about collecting CCE games. And what those are, they are 2,600 titles that are produced in Brazil. And they play on the North American console of the 2600. But some of the games we did not get in the U.S. or are very expensive in the U.S. So you can typically get them cheaper by getting the Brazil titles. One of those is Condor Attack, which is a very rare game and uh, hard to come by. But you can get the Brazilian version for a much, much cheaper price. 
But the game that I got, and I was finally able to track down after years, and that is a copy of a game called Sea Monster. And I actually got the blue label. Now, a lot of the CCE games have black labels, but some of the other ones have color labels. So I was really ecstatic to get this game with a blue label. Uh, worked out a deal online for it and uh, added that to my collection and have added that game and a picture of that game to the RF Generation database for other collectors out there. Alright, and then I do want to mention my big pickups. As many of you know, much to my wife's chagrin, I have gotten into collecting arcade games now. <laughs> and uh, I picked up one of my childhood favorites and a game that we actually played its sequel on the show. I picked up a Rolling Thunder from uh, the guy that owns the local arcade and retro video game store. We've become really good friends. And he had a Rolling Thunder and a Frogger at a really, really, really good price. And uh, I got the Rolling Thunder for myself, the Frogger for my neighbor. And we are both very, very happy with these really nice machines. That's a game I always played as a kid, have great memories of, and uh, definitely want to put some time into beating. And then another game that I picked up, I had recently purchased an empty cabinet for a specific game and was going to put it together myself. But then, after ordering a few things online to fix this cabinet up, I get a call from a friend of mine who says he's actually found this game at a really, really good price and then it looked nice. And so I actually saved money by buying this game instead of trying to get all the parts, you know, and put it together. So I picked up a classic. It's made by Century. It's a game called Vanguard, which was ported to the 2600 and the 5200. But those are the only two ports of that game. And it is a fantastic game. It has a joystick that lets you move the ship up and down. And it has four directional buttons that allow you to fire up, down, left, and right. And so it is a super fun game. has a boss battle at the end of the stage if you make it all the way to the end. And uh, really, really happy to add that to my arcade lineup. All right, Sean, I wanted to talk about something that you and I both picked up recently. You didn't mention it a while ago, but how about the Shadow of the Colossus book? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Nick Sutner wrote a book that was in this series called Boss Battle Books. I honestly don't really know anything about this, except that it just so happens that if you look at RFGeneration.com right now, there's a review of another one of the books in the series. So this is something that's coming into my consciousness for the first time. But I do know Nick Sutner. He's one of the co-hosts of the PlayStation Blogcast, which I've talked about on our show before as one of my favorite podcasts. It is an official Sony podcast, so it is, you know, essentially a commercial for PlayStation games. But in the way that Nintendo Power was a commercial for Nintendo, it's just as enjoyable and maybe a little bit more honest, let's say. But I saw on Twitter that this book about Shadow of Colossus written by Nick Sutner was on Amazon for a couple bucks. So I, I know that's your favorite game of all time. Oh, yeah. So I just said, hey, man, I'm buying this. You might want to look into it as well. So sounds like you grabbed a copy yourself. 
Absolutely. And it was at half price yeah. when you sent it to me. It was, I think, seven or eight bucks. So uh, definitely worth the grab. It's my favorite game of all time, and I can't wait to dig into it. And uh, maybe we could give a little book review at some point on the show. Tell me, Sean, what did you play this past month? All right. Well, I played a lot of stuff, but in the interest of time and in the interest of not babbling, because I've done so much of that already, <laughs> I'm just going to highlight a couple of things that were really good that I played. Uh, a game I played on the 3DS called Attack of the Friday Monsters, A Tokyo Tale, I think was the subtitle. I just wrote down Attack of the Friday Monsters, but there's a a subtitle, a Tokyo Tale, I believe. This is an eShop title where you are a young boy in a suburban-ish part of Tokyo in the 1970s, and you walk around the world, you talk to people, you collect gems, the gems turn into cards, and you can use the cards for this really, really rudimentary card battle. And it, when I say card battle, it's not Yu-Gi-Oh! It's not Hearthstone. It's literally rock, paper, scissors. And you can kind of power up your cards to be like if there's a tie, your thing will be a tiebreaker. But it's so very simple. So don't let it uh, intimidate you. It's not a CCG, like a hardcore card collecting game. Uh, but anyway, what it really is, is like the most pleasant, relaxing slice of life anime in a video game form. It's very low intensity. 
It's just walking around talking to people. And the story of the game is that this little area that you live in, every Friday there's like a monster attack, like a kaiju <laughs> monster attack. But it's just really cute and endearing, amazingly appealing to the eyes, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Now, there's the caveat that this game is not physically available. It's a download only, but it's worth playing no matter what. And you never know if there will be a physical edition someday. And then the worst thing that happens is that you've already played it and you can get a physical copy of it. Yeah, sounds cool, man. Sounds right up my alley. Yeah, it's really, really good. And it's short. It's really only like two or three hours long. Uh, so I know that I will be playing it again if I want that type of experience. It was very unique and really played into my tastes in an amazing way. Because usually to get those kind of pleasant, nice, relaxing experiences, you have to go to something that what I call my wheelhouse is games that are aimed more towards like the female demographic or to children. So to have a game like this that wasn't necessarily uh, aimed at those demographics specifically, I, I was just really grateful for it and enjoyed it quite a bit. Nice. Okay, so the next game I played is Transformers The Cybertron Adventures for Wii. And I had to just look it up because there are many Transformers games on the Wii, but this one is the one I want to talk about, and I don't want to confuse it with any of the movie tie-ins or any of the other trash that's on the Wii with the Transformers name on it. So make sure you get Transformers of Cybertron Adventures. Some of our listeners might remember me talking about Ghost Recon on the Wii and how you shouldn't sleep on that game because it was an awesome light gun game with cover-based shooting mechanics in it. Well, the developer of that game, which is Next Level Games, also made Transformers Cybertron Adventures. And for my money, Transformers is even better than Ghost Recon on the Wii. Wow. Now, I'm not a Transformers expert, but these seem to me to be Gen 1 Transformers, like when we played the Xbox game last year. Um, it's Optimus Prime, it's uh, Starscream, it's Bumblebee, it's it's all the, the ones that I remember from being a kid. So it's the same kind of gameplay where you have cover-based shooting, so you pull, I think it's a Z-trigger to take cover and go in and out of cover. Then you're aiming on the screen like it's a light gun game. You're shooting. You can use the D-pad to change weapons on the fly. So you can have like a blaster for dudes that are up close to you. Then you can switch to a Gatling gun on the fly. And if there's like little things flying at you, the Gatling gun is better. Then you can go to a sniper rifle and snipe dudes that are far away. Like the gameplay is so awesome. And then you like transform and drive for, you know, there's driving segments because it is a Transformers game after all. And much like Ghost Recon, I think this game, I think it's related to the Cybertron games that came out on the Xbox 360 and the PS3. But of course, it's not the same game. It's a different game developed from the ground up for the Wii, but it just got 
uh, for marketing purposes bundled in with the other games. And therefore, it reviewed kind of poorly. But looking back on it and playing it now, it stands alone as an awesome, fun, amazing game. And uh, I would highly recommend it. Do you know anything about this uh, particular Transformers Wii game, Rich? No, you know, I've always kind of stayed away from Transformers games, except for Transformers Devastation, because most of the more recent games have been based on the movie franchise, which I pretend does not exist and will not watch any any movie of. So yeah, no, I haven't heard of that. Sounds cool, especially if it's G1 Transformers. I'm definitely in. Awesome. I'll just move right along into the Wii U games I played. Uh, I'll just mention two. One that I finished is called Devil's Third. Now, this is a game that's kind of infamous for its development and uh, its short print run, and it became one of these like hugely collectible games. But then, again, it had a very poor critical reception, so it was one of those games that's like really hard to find and really pricey but then on the other hand people call it like a crappy game so it falls into all these weird categories that make it kind of noteworthy but i just wanted to play it and it turns out it's like a third person hack and slash game that also has first person call of duty like shooting mechanics in it so you're running around with a katana or or hatchets or knives or whatever and doing third person hack and slash kind of stuff then you you move along into another area and there's dudes behind cover shooting at you so you pull the left trigger and it becomes call of duty and you're aiming down the sights shooting at them and it's a freaking awesome game and i loved it and i wonder sometimes what games are people playing I understand Devil's Third is not a technical masterpiece. The voice acting is really stupid. I think it's one of those games that's it's kind of like a deadly premonition, if you know about that game. Mm-hmm. It's schlocky, and it's not AAA production values, so people just rag all over it. But now it's developing a cult following, and it's obviously a real cult following because it's a very obscure hard to find game on an obscure system that you know not a lot of people have uh but if you have a wii u and you're willing to shell out for a hard to find collectible game the price has come down because there was a as far as i understand a second print run that really kind of brought the price down so it's more in line with a normal like you know, let's say like 40 bucks. So okay. uh, for me, if you like these kind of schlocky games that are corny and bad voice acting and and crazy uh, production value and characters, and it's almost like it, it really strikes me as like one of these older like Sega type games that's just flashy and weird. But but anyway, <laughs> it's uh, it was so much fun. Devil's Third. Awesome cool. game. And then lastly, the game I'm playing right now in my new game room, just chilling, enjoying at my leisure, is The Amazing Spider-Man on Wii U. And uh, I don't know what made me pick this game. Like, I don't know anything about the Spider-Man movies. I think it has something to do with one of them or something. But there's no... I think Spider-Man is voiced by Liam O'Brien and not 
you know, Andrew Garfield. So I don't know how tied in it's supposed to be in with one of those movies, but it's just a fun ass Spider-Man game. You fly around the city and it's an open world map and you can do side missions and stop random street crimes and do your story missions and all that jazz. And it's really, really fun. The Wii U version doesn't run very well and I'm you know I'm not a big frame rate guy and it's not even the frame rate that bothers me so much but there is a lot of screen tearing and instability on the screen itself that is really obnoxious but I guess I'm kind of getting used to it because I'm really enjoying the game and that's what I'm playing right now very cool man sounds like some awesome titles man and a few that I would definitely like to check out. All right, as far as the games I'm playing, I mentioned a few minutes ago that I picked up two games and I've also been playing them, so I neglected to mention them in my pickups. But one of those games is called Psyraid for the original Game Boy. Now, this is a game that is not very common. It doesn't pop up much, but it's not a very expensive game either. And um, I was able to obtain a copy off of eBay from a Buy It Now at a price that I thought was good. And had heard some good things about this game from YouTube videos that I had watched of quote-unquote hidden gem titles, right, Sean? Mm -hmm. But um, it is a puzzle game, and I love puzzle games quite a bit. It's very difficult, more difficult than any other puzzle game I played. It took me a while to even get past the first stage and learn the mechanics of the game since I didn't have a manual and I had gotten a loose copy. But it's one that if you're into puzzle games, I would highly, highly recommend. It's something that you're not going to get through quick. Uh, you're going to have to put a little thought into and take a lot of time on these levels. But uh, yeah, it's definitely one I would say is worth owning. And then the final game that I played, and Sean, you may have heard of this game. It did get a physical release, although it is one of the pricier titles. I had sold some stuff and was able to actually get a copy of this off eBay and that is What Remains of Edith Finch. Have you heard of this game? Yes, I've heard of it. Um, Cartridge Club did it recently. And they also, did. I'm pretty sure it's PlayStation Plus this month, I think. So I'll definitely be adding it to my queue. And uh, depending on what you are about to tell me about it, maybe I'll play it. Well, it is only a two-hour game. I like it so far. All right, right. <laughs> you would like that. Um it's a walking simulator, so based on how much you want to take in and what you want to do, it's over two hours, probably, but it can be played in two hours, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a walking simulator, lets you explore. The premise is, is, well, maybe or maybe not, you are this girl named Edith Finch, and your mother has passed away, and she has given you a key and told you to go back to this house. You had lived there for a lot of your life. Your entire family lived there for years, generations and generations. And the house is very grotesque looking. It has rooms that are added on, and it's just crazy. There's secret passages in it. And you are kind of unraveling this story about this family that may or may not be cursed. 
And so that is what the gameplay is, is you're just walking through it, looking at, picking up items, interacting with things. It's a very cool concept. It has these, like, sub-stories that you have to participate in. I'm not going to give away what those are, but uh, it's a really, really good game. I really enjoyed it a lot. I'm not usually a big fan of walking simulators, but this one is very well done. Uh, I had mentioned before that I was going to pick up the game Unfinished Swan, and uh, this is the um, second game by that same company. So it says a lot that because I played What Remains of Edith Finch that I want to play the game prior to that because I think it's like a spiritual sequel to this game in some regards. So I highly, highly recommend playing this game, and I also very highly recommend listening to the episode by the Cartridge Club, which does have spoilers in it, after you finish the game. So that's what I did. I put it on my podcast list. I started listening to it, and at the beginning of it, the first five minutes, they're like, well, we're going to do some spoilers, cut it off, got the game, played it. They had said enough in that first five or ten minutes that made me really interested in the game. So I bought it, played it, and uh, you know, then finished the podcast, which was very, very good, and uh, actually put something out on Twitter about, you know, how everyone should listen to that show. So, yeah, man, if you get it for free, definitely, definitely check it out. Cool. And I, I have played the unfinished Swan. So now that I know that there is that connection, it's even more of a intriguing proposition to play Edith Finch. And also when you mentioned the house that has secret doors and stuff like that, I don't know what it is, but that's something that has always intrigued me like the spatial layouts of buildings and I don't mean the architecture but I actually have I guess what you could call a recurring dream about secret passages and doors that I didn't know were there before doors that are like maybe too narrow for my body to fit through or have some kind of special way to open and I'm it's weird and it's hard to explain and I don't know what it says about my psyche, <laughs> but um, when you said that, it really perked me up. So yeah, I'll play this. I'll probably talk about it in the coming months, I'm sure. Awesome. And I will say this, it is our type of story. Cool. So uh, yeah, man, I'll be curious to hear what your thoughts are on this game. If I see the morning
Alright, so this month we asked the question on social media, what is your favorite video game with a strange or ambiguous storyline? And Sean, we got some pretty good answers, right? Yeah, we got some great answers, and I want to note that we had a little bit of a hard time developing this question, uh, which is usually mostly you. You'll just come up with like, hey, how's this for the question of the month? And I'm just like, that's brilliant. Let's go with it. But with this one, we started out by saying, what's your favorite game with a ambiguous ending? And I thought mm-hmm. for people to come out and answer that question, they might be spoiling games. Yep. And we t- we talked just in this episode earlier about spoiler culture and you know whether to avoid or whether to spoil kind of thing. But I thought we would actually not get as many responses if we were essentially asking people to spoil. And even when I was started looking at my games for what was actually the question, the strange or ambiguous storyline I thought this game here would have been good if we went with endings but I wouldn't want to talk about it on the air so I'm glad we kind of amended the question a little bit but we did get a bunch of good responses our friend Steven Eider on Twitter said Soma had a pretty cool concept to it yeah I've heard a lot about that game never played it though I really want to Yeah, me too. And I'm pretty sure I have it digitally somewhere on one of these systems. So I, yeah, it's always been on my radar. Um, Good friend, Herb Beta Patched, who, by the way, his YouTube channel, if you haven't seen it, is amazing. And the reason I think it's amazing is because he is trying to review every PlayStation 2 game. So he's a man after my own heart. (laughs) uh, And his videos are great. Yeah, and I want to mention that he is not a staff writer for RF Generation, but he posts a blog on RF Generation with his videos, and those often get promoted by me when I have some free space on the front page. And so I really, really appreciate him doing that. And like you said, PS2 videos have some really good information in them and are really, really well done. Excellent. Well, he says... And as I read this, this could be spoilery. I don't know. But it says <laughs> Star Ocean 3 has a weird plot. The first half is spacemen pretending to be heroes in a fantasy world. And then it transitions to people in a simulation escaping that simulation to destroy their creators. And then he adds Stanley Parable 2, <laughs> which we played Stanley Parable way back in the day. I didn't play it, but it was one of our titles at some point. So moving along, Kevin Buried on Mars says, Metal Gear Solid 4, the only game that can get me to watch someone fry an egg. Now, do you know what he's referring to? (laughs) I do not. I have not played that game. Okay, so Metal Gear Solid 4 was the first Metal Gear Solid game for the PlayStation 3. It's pretty divisive amongst fans because the gameplay to cutscene ratio is probably the lowest in the series like Mm. there's probably like three or four hours of actual gameplay to probably like 20 or to 30 uh (laughs) you know hours of cutscenes in this game i might be exaggerating a little but like it's really bad So there is this air base that you have where one of the characters fries eggs all the time and the cutscenes open and close with her frying the egg in real time. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's just, it's bizarre. But Kevin is right. It's very mesmerizing. And at the time, it looked amazing, you know, like graphically, because this was a early, if not a launch title. I can't remember exactly, but this is a good response. I like that one. I love Kevin. Great response. Okay, moving along, the aforementioned Pocky X quite simply says Silent Hill 2, which is no surprise coming from him because I believe you know, that's one of his all-time favorite games. He's used it as a response to uh, other questions that we've asked in the past. What if he just uses that as a response to every question, no matter if That'd it fits funny. or not? It, it could work because what just popped into my head is like, what is the funniest game you've ever played? And you could say Silent Hill 2 <laughs> for certain reasons that I won't go into. Here's a surprise for you, bro. I had Crabmaster2000 text me a response. How do you like that? What? Oh, that's awesome. Favorite game with a strange or ambiguous storyline has to be Ultima 4 Quest of the Avatar. The storyline is still, to this day, incredibly unique for such an old title. The point of the game isn't to save the world or stop a great evil like most RPGs. It is to become a shining pinnacle of humanity for the rest of the world to look up to. Simple things like stealing from shops can prevent you from finishing the game because you aren't living up to the ideals of being the avatar of man. (laughs) Very strange storyline with ambiguous ending that I absolutely love and hold in incredibly high esteem. So thank you, Krabby, for that. My wife, I asked her this question, and she said Tomba on the PS1. Mm, At first, I said, what's so ambiguous about that? And she said, you said stranger ambiguous. And I said, oh, yeah, that is kind of stranger, a caveman fighting like demon pigs. So, yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) Right. Nothing strange about that. And so my answer to this question would be The Darkness 1 and or 2, where you play as a gangster who is controlled by demons who are voiced by Mike Patton, and the demons are your secondary weapons, and you can use them to like bite people's hearts out and stuff. It's very strange, and it's awesome. Well, for me, as to the surprise of no one, at the top of my list would probably be Shadow of the Colossus. It is a very, very strange game and uh, very ambiguous as far as the story. However, I'm going to pick another game oh. and say Eco. Oh, <laughs> which okay. Same developer, so <laughs> I'm not making a big stretch here. But at the same time, I felt like you get a little less story in Eco than you do Shadow of the Colossus. I think with Shadow of the Colossus, you can kind of infer a lot of things, understand why you're doing what you're doing. But with Eco, it's sort of like you just kind of wake up and you're in this place and you're trying to escape with this girl and you have no idea who you are, what she is, or you know why you're in this place. So I would say probably a little bit more ambiguous than Shadow of the Colossus is in that sense. Great. Well, this was a great question. Again, it took a little bit of development to kind of <laughs> hammer out a, the question the way we wanted it. But how does this relate to our main discussion, Rich? Well, in April, we played two games, which we usually don't do. We usually stick with one title. But both of these games were developed by the same studio. And those two games are Limbo 
and inside. Both very strange and I would say story-wise are very ambiguous. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. So participants this month were us, of course. Our buddy, Dougley007, as always. Crabmaster2000, who I don't believe has missed a playthrough this year either. Pam, Rocket Willie, and Zofar53. I just remembered that our good friend Corey, also known as Turn Around and Run, he played Limbo and I spoke to him in person about it, but he didn't register or go on the forums. I think that kind of really slipped his mind, but he played Limbo on the Vita. So uh, shout out to Corey as well. All right. So just a little bit about the stats of both games. Of course, both were developed and published by Playdead, which I mentioned earlier. This is a Danish independent video game developer based in Copenhagen. The game designers were Art Jensen and Dino Patty. They created the company, Playdead, in 2006, basically to develop Limbo, which was an idea that they had come up with. Limbo is a 2D side-scrolling puzzle platformer released in July 2010 on Xbox Live Arcade and later Windows and PS3. You can also get this in physical compilations. There's one that Sean and I mentioned on the last show, which is the Xbox 360 one. And it comes with what game, Sean? Uh, Trials HD and Explosion Man. So if you can get your hands on that, you're getting three fantastic games on one disc, which for you physically only guys is a (laughs) slam dunk. And if you want to get both games on the same disc, you can opt for the PS4 version. Now, the second game we played, Inside, which of course came out later, it is a 2.5 D side-scrolling puzzle platformer. It has a little bit more depth in the background than what Limbo does, and so it has a, a little bit different aesthetic. It was developed upon the success of Limbo and published in 2016 for PS4, Xbox One, and Windows, and apparently is the spiritual successor to Limbo. It was actually funded by the Danish Film Institute. They were given $1 million to develop this game based on what they had done with Limbo. So, in talking about these games, we really have to kind of establish how we're going to handle this discussion, right? Because we're talking about two different games. And I think a lot of our discussion is going to be sort of back and forth. We'll talk about both games because they are very similar, right, Sean? Yes, they're similar but different in some really distinct ways, and I have tried to put my finger on ways to enunciate how they are different, and I have some creative things I can't wait to share with you. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. But they are similar in a lot of ways as well, so what we'll try to do is, as we're discussing like gameplay and stuff like that, there's going to be a lot of similarities in that, and then we will also branch out in talking about what the differences are in the games. But uh, first off, let's go ahead and talk about the story a bit. I'm going to give a brief synopsis of each story without giving any spoilers right now. We will save that for the discussion later. In Limbo, you play as an unknown boy. You basically wake up in a forest. You have no idea why you're there. Basically, it side-scrolls from left to right. And you are trying to go through all of these different hazards, right? There's all these puzzles. There's people that are trying to attack you. There's traps. 
There's the infamous spider that shows up on most of the artwork that you see out there for the game, which I'm sure we will talk about later. But you really have no clue as to what your destination is or why you're moving toward that end goal. So there's a bit of vagueness to this story. And similarly, with the game inside, there's a lot of vagueness. You also are an unnamed boy who wakes up in the woods. There's several different types of traps and things like that that you have to avoid. And you basically work your way out of the forest and through some farmland into a factory that is producing something that's very human-like to basically do their bidding, right? Yeah, it's some kind of husks or mind-controlled clones that Mm -hmm. are being produced and manipulated and trained in this facility. It's creepy right off the bat, but yeah, that's that's what you're given (laughs) uh, pretty early on. Yeah, and... I think now is not really the appropriate time for us to talk about like what our thoughts are and what's going on in these games, which we will say for the end of the conversation. And we've got some thoughts from our listeners and from some of the members who played with us this month. But what we should basically say up front is both games have a lack of story and that both have unnamed characters, which I wanted to kind of get into a little bit, talk about what the significance of that was. Well, the unnamed characters, I wouldn't put too much weight on that because so many games have unnamed characters. Like when we played, uh, what was the game we played recently where the character was just called The Boy? Was it like The Last Guardian or something? Like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of games that are similar to these in that you're just some dude or some girl or some boy and uh there is no name and that doesn't mean a nameless created character where you use a character creator and make you or you make something that you want to be you get the boy and you are the boy and that's what you play as in both games yeah i agree you know with a lot of games the unnamed character can make it seem basically like an everyman type game. Like this could be anyone. And I do sort of get that vibe a little bit more with Limbo than I did inside. But I guess having no name also gives you more of a personal relationship with that character and, you know, more of a first person view as opposed to like, you know, a third person where you know that it does actually have a name and uh, can kind of immerse you a little bit more into the game. That's just my thoughts. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot to unravel. And I'm sure with a lot of stuff we're going to say, the developers would probably just be shaking their heads and like, oh, nah, man, they totally missed that. So, uh, you know, I think these games are free for interpretation a lot of times. And uh, a lot of what I like about these games, and uh, I'm sure you probably feel the same way, although I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I do. And in fact, from what I understand, the developers feel the same way, too. They're very tight-lipped on what the story Mm -hmm. actually means, which is why the fan theory stuff that we'll get into in a little bit is so prevalent, because the developers have not elaborated almost in any way on what these (laughs) games are about. So I think that's kind of cool. I like that. I do too. And they have come out with a few things that we will talk about toward the end of the discussion again. But uh, yeah, I mean, the mystery behind this game and the story for me, 
I know it doesn't work for everyone, but for me, it's just very compelling and wants me to keep playing the game more and more. I, I have to figure out what's going on here. You know, the, just the mystery just excites me and pushes me forward until I can get to the end of a game like this. You know, like I said, I know it turns some people off if they don't have a story from the beginning or know why they're playing. They don't see a lot of value in continuing. But for me, man, it, it just gets my juices going, you know. <laughs> I just want to continue and uh, keep plugging through until I get to the end. Anyway, just a little bit about the gameplay of these games. They're both very similar in that they are puzzle platformers. You don't have a lot of commands, even though you're using a PlayStation 4 controller. A lot of the buttons aren't used. There's only a few, right? Both games have a jump, and then both games have like a grab. I think there's other areas where, you know, you may be able to use something to manipulate, like pull or do other things, but it's very simplistic. So there's not a big learning curve on what to do in these games. As we mentioned, they're puzzle platformers, so you're trying to get through these areas and figure out how to manipulate things to get to the next area. I would probably argue that they're somewhat segmented, especially inside. is a very segmented game. You go from like a forest to a farmhouse to the inside of what I would say is like a factory processing center. Sometimes you're going underwater and then, you know, back in the factory and then conclusion of the game. But with Limbo, it seems like one fantastical world. Limbo is a trial and death game. You're not expected to make it through this entire game the first time you play it. You are expected to fail, to die, and to do it again. But I don't know, Sean, I know some people had a problem with this on the forums, but I just kind of felt like when I died, within the next one or two tries, I would end up getting it right. And uh, it didn't bother me so much. How about you? So for me, you know, I hate environmental puzzles. I don't play yes, you puzzle, do. what, what anybody would call puzzle <laughs> platformers. It's not my thing. But I love Limbo, and I ended up loving Inside, and I couldn't at the time on the forum enunciate why and now as i've thought about it and as we're discussing it i think it is that trial and error thing because like if i'm playing some environmental puzzle game or even something like a zelda game this is one of the reasons i don't like them so much is that if you get to a screen or you get to uh, some point in a level and you say what the hell am i supposed to do next what what is the next step well, in Limbo, the game teaches you immediately what not to do because you go too close to the spider and he lances your head right off your body. <laughs> so you say, okay, I can't walk up to the spider in this way. Or, you know, you fall in water and he drowns. Okay, I don't survive water. So how do I get right. around the water? How do I get over it? What do I do? You know, so I think... The trial and error, trial and death, as they're calling it, is the feedback that you need. It doesn't tell you what to do. It tells you what not to do. And it's very clear. Right. I totally agree. And one of the things about this game is that I always felt like the answer was right within my grasp. You know, yes. the checkpointing is so good in this game, which I think we should mention now. Mm -hmm. When you do die, you just start that singular puzzle over again. There's no large consequences for dying. So it does foster that trial and death attitude that the developers have set forth in front of you. So, 
you can always go back a little bit within the puzzle, but a lot of times you're kind of cut off as far as not having to go back too far. So you know something is there within your realm to solve that puzzle. And I really like that about the game. I think the developers did a good job of that. And I never found any places where I was absolutely stuck if I made a poor decision. Yeah, that's true. And also, when you mentioned the checkpointing, I want to add that kind of makes it almost exciting in a way, because as things are revealed to you mentally, you have these kind of eureka moments where you say, oh, no, 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 the cart crushes me if I do that. So all I got to do is move the cart over here and press the button. And then once you do it, you incrementally move forward in some way that you might die the next second on something else, but at least you figured out the cart and the button thing. You know what I mean? I'm just using some weird example that I'm making up. But the puzzles, they just come to you incrementally in steps, and it can be really exciting because of that good checkpointing that you brought up. Yeah. And uh, I'll say this. I didn't really have to use any walkthroughs or anything for Limbo. And, uh, you know, that says a lot. I mean, I could figure out what to do, but it's very satisfying. I remember one of the puzzles where, you know, you had to pull a cart beneath the ladder and there's these two, like, it almost looks like those things that are inside of a grandfather clock that you have to raise up and run under. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. That was a tricky one, and that was one of the first times I got stumped in the game and, you know, finally figured it out, and, you know, you got to be quick. But uh, I thought that was a really, really well-done puzzle, and uh, much like all the other puzzles in this game, I think are really well done. There were some parts that were frustrating, but, you know, overall, I think the puzzles for me really worked. You mentioned walkthroughs. I ended up using it walkthroughs a couple times for Limbo. And then what's funny is that when I started playing Inside, I said, if I need to walk through at all, I'm going to just use it. Like, I'm not going to force myself to try to figure out Inside. And it's funny, I don't know if Inside was easier. I think it was a little bit easier. But every time I looked up a walkthrough on Inside, I found that what I was missing was some rope that I just couldn't see clearly every yeah. single time. <laughs> so um, I think we should mention too, Rich, is this your first time playing both of these games? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so I just want to throw out there that I played Limbo way back in the day when I first got my Xbox 360, like back in 07 or 08 or whenever it was. And um, I remember enjoying it back then and getting through it I think without a walkthrough at all, I don't remember super clearly. So Mm -hmm. I made a conscious effort, even though I did eventually surrender and look at a walkthrough a couple times, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, I tried not to. But then for whatever reason, when I played inside, I was just like, okay, I don't care. Like if I have to use a walkthrough, I just want to get through it, you know, but like Limbo was this weird like labor of love where I said, I'm not using a walkthrough unless I absolutely have to. (laughs) Right. You kind of compared the games and the difficulty in both games. I don't know that one's more difficult than the other, but Limbo, I think, is a little more frustrating. And I don't know really what that is. Some of the levels have a gravitational effect to them, which are tough. Some things that are dependent on timing. Now, there are things that depend on timing and inside, but at the same time, I don't know what it is. I can't really put my finger on it, but there's something a little more frustrating about that gameplay in Limbo. Yeah, I agree. I think, And I do think it is. There is some like real twitch timing in Limbo, no doubt about it. Yeah, that's probably what it is. But, you know, unlike 
some others, I think I give it a little bit of a break for that because this was the first game that they did. And, you know, it seems like with the second game, they did some improvements, which if you're a good development company, that's what you're going to do. You know, you're going to make those adjustments to make your game better. So I do feel like the gameplay elements were much better and, you know, more well done in Inside. Just my thoughts on that. But anyway, let's move on and talk about the environmental and physical hazards in the games. Now, let's start off with Limbo. In Limbo, one of the first things we encounter are the bear traps, <laughs> which mm. uh, I don't know about you. You probably don't remember the first time you played the game, but man, did I walk right into that. Oh, I did both times. I didn't remember what it did. And there goes my head rolling down the hill. <laughs> and we got to say that one of the things about it is that these traps are kind of hidden within the artwork because it's a very monochromatic game, right? It's basically grayscale. Yeah. And so it looks like part of the environment. I mean, it could just be grass that you're running through. And, you know, you've got this whole open forest that you're running through. You're like, oh, you're just kind of jogging along. And then snap, you know, your head's rolling on the ground. So uh, it's pretty crazy. But, uh, you know, you get to use those later on in the game. There was another element in Limbo that was different from inside. And I wanted to talk for a minute about the glow worms. Uh, that was really neat. In Limbo, yeah. so there's these worm things that fall from the ceiling that get glued to your head and they force you to walk in one direction. You can still control your character, but all you can do is walk faster in that direction and jump. So it becomes like an auto-scroller in a way, or an endless runner. <laughs> in a yeah, really... you can't stop your feet. That's pretty much what it is. You're going to exactly. keep moving forward, yeah. So part of the puzzle elements become, what can I like block myself up against? And then how do I find these bird creatures that eat the worm off your head? So you have to find them <laughs> to get it to get it off your head. But then... There are certain puzzles where they just work it in brilliantly, where sometimes you're using that to your advantage. And it's hard to explain without having a specific example. But like when the glow worm hits your head, it turns you around at a perfect point where you avoid a hazard that you might not have even realized was there or something like that. So yeah. it's kind of neat the way they did it. What did you think about that mechanic? I loved it. I thought it was yeah. a great mechanic. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> it really made you think because, I mean, sometimes, you know, you get that worm in your head and you just be headed toward a pit of spikes and you got to make some sort of decision, you know, and a lot of times it's already hit you before you've already been able to manipulate the environment to help you out, you know, and so you're just right. going right for that pit. But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic mechanic and I think it's probably my favorite in the game. They put a lot of thought into that and... Um, we definitely see that mind control, quote unquote, device show up in their second game inside, which we'll talk about in a little while, right? That's right. One thing that I want to talk about, it's so iconic with Limbo, is the giant spider. It's so cool. It's the thing of nightmares, isn't it? And it's amazing that they could get such a reaction from that, you know, merely based on a very monochromatic color scheme. But it is absolutely terrifying. It's a neat way to start out the game, and uh, I found it uh, really fascinating. How about you? Uh, so let me ask you this. Are you afraid of spiders? <sighs> I don't like them, but I'm not afraid of them. I'm the bug killer in my house. Yeah. And so for me, I actually think spiders are pretty cool. 
I don't like them in a way that I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like the spider guy. But like when I see one in my house, I usually leave it alone because I know they kind of take care of other pests. I'm not scared of them in any way. I I think they're kind of neat and cool and I like them. So this, the spider in limbo is more of a menace to me because of its size and because of its dangerous nature and what it can do to you. It's not because I'm so scared of spiders, ew, a spider. It took on more of an environmental hazard to me, but I mean... To say it conveyed menace is an understatement. Yeah, and there's at one point you get captured by it, and it's on purpose. You have to get captured by it to progress in the game, and that's really neat. And there's parts where you're running from it, and man, that guy is not going to take not catching you for an answer, right? (laughs) I mean, he's got one leg and just like creeping at you one leg to try to get you there at the end, and uh, yeah pretty awesome i thought it was really well integrated into the game and like i said it's in all the artwork so you have to talk about that when you talk about limbo yes that's kind of your introduction to um, the danger that is in this game which i thought was a really really good choice apparently one of the developers is arachnophobic and so that was one of the reasons that he put that in the game And I also want to talk about the mechanical and gravitational dangers in the game. This is probably one of the parts that was the most frustrating to me. This was sort of the toughest. It was based on a lot of timing. Gravity would change and you've got all these gears and things that can harm you and, you know, cut you up. The checkpointing was a little bit longer in these parts as well, uh, which could be a little bit frustrating and especially that ending sequence. But uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, the gravity thing was a frustration for people on the forum as well. I think Pam specifically said that the gravity switches were pissing her off. So uh, you're not the only one. And I'm kind of sad because one of the things that I had to look up for a walkthrough turned out to be the final puzzle. Oh, yeah. So I saw the final scene on a YouTube video and I was like, this is the end of the game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was a tough puzzle, though, and that yeah. was that was one I, I, man, probably over fifty tries to get that right. I never looked it up. I kind of figured out what I had to do, but man, that's precise timing. Yeah, so that was annoying. Yeah. Some other things I want to talk about is the enemies in the game because it's kind of odd. I mean, you think about Limbo, and we should mention the significance of that. Is that Limbo is this world from literature that is not heaven and is not hell. It's really a spot where you haven't ascended to heaven yet. A lot of limbo is there for people that passed away before Christ died for everyone's sins. It's also for unbaptized children or, you know, babies. And so it does have a significance in this game as far as a place that is, I would say, inescapable. I always find like the religious backstories to these kind of things to be very interesting. And the word limbo is common, even as like a turn of phrase, like when you're at work and you can't proceed on a project because you're waiting on something and you say, this project is in limbo, you know, and it just means that nothing's happening. So the concept of limbo 
it's one of those words that if you know what it means, you know exactly what it means when you hear a game based on it. You know it's going to have some kind of in-between nature, and it plays into that ambiguous nature that we were talking about. Like, you know it's going to be somewhat ambiguous before you even play the game, you know, based on the title being Limbo. It's also a game you play where you try to lean back and crawl under a stick without your shoulders touching the ground. Do you know about that? Yes. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I've done it on roller skates, man. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not good at it because I'm very tall. So I'm still fat, so I'm not (laughs) good at it. (laughs) But it's a great point you bring up. And uh, I guess what's kind of crazy for me is there's like enemy characters in this game that I think we need to talk about. You are not the only person in this world. You run across other people who have looked like they've tried to transverse this area. I mean, they're drowned bodies. There's one that's really disturbing. You walk toward this one guy and the floor crumbles out from underneath you and you basically hang him because you did that. You know, I mean, he may already be deceased, but... Yeah, there's some kind of crazy mental imagery in this, right? Yeah, and there's another one, I think, where uh, another boy who kind of looks like you runs into water and drowns, and you have to use his body as a platform. That was pretty morbid as well. You have to drag one onto a switch. Yeah. To get the switch to come down, and it just completely smashes the body, but then you can walk over top of the trap. So um, this game is very violent. If you don't know, and, uh, you know, it's something I think that we're going to spend some time talking about later and, you know, how we feel about the violence in this game. Anyway, just wanted to point it out and uh, want to go ahead and move on to the game inside. I mentioned before, like Limbo, it begins in the forest, and there are these segmented areas where you transition from forest to farmland to factory to underwater, back to factory, and then the last 20% of the game, which is a completely wild adventure, (laughs) which uh, I really enjoyed. I really like how this game had these different areas, and unlike Limbo, which felt like a whole world, this one felt kind of chopped up, and it really was nice to kind of break it up that way and give it some diversity. I agree. I think the variety in the environments made the game more interesting in a way and it gave the game the appearance of moving along faster mm-hmm. where limbo you kind of felt like you were in limbo and you were it was sluggish and yeah. you're deep in this world whereas with inside there's color first and foremost it's not black yeah. and white like limbo and you're moving from place to place and there's different types of environments Mm. ironically the game is called inside but it's both outdoors and indoors Mm. at different parts of the game so that's a good point i found it it added to the pace of the game if not literally then at least mentally yeah no i totally agree for some reason i felt like in limbo you just went from puzzle to puzzle to puzzle to puzzle you know it felt very chopped up whereas um inside felt more fluid Like Limbo, Inside is full of puzzles. You have enemies. uh, There are these dogs that chase you that if they actually catch up with you, it's very, very vicious. There are these humans. I would probably describe them as like security officers will shoot you, capture you, or in some instances, even strangle you. 
there is quite a variety of enemies in this game, and one that I really wanted to focus on and talk about in particular, I don't know what they are, but they're inside of the factory and they're in all the underwater scenes. They're kind of like these demonic mermaids, right, Sean? Yeah, they look like, and I'm not the only one to mention this, they look like, I think Krabby said, like Samara from The Ring. They look like Japanese ghosts from Japanese horror movies. Yeah. And uh, yeah, all you can see is, you know, this naked little body with just tons of hair coming at you. Yeah. And that doesn't sound very scary, but it actually really is. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. I mean, it's these, like, oh, look, it's this sweet little girl over here. And then you're like, whoa. <laughs> I think you first encounter one in a submarine and they're afraid of light. So if you turn around, you know, it's like those ghosts in Super Mario World, the booze where you can turn yes. around and they stop. Um, so you have to use that technique a few times, but one time I was like, oh, let's see what happens if I don't turn around. Yep. She pulled me right out of that submarine and started dragging me down for something so innocent. They are extremely creepy and probably more terrifying to me than the dogs in the game. Yeah. Agreed. But at one point, one of them kind of helps you, right? And you're able to breathe underwater during the game. So that was kind of a neat mechanic. It reminded me a lot of the spider from Limbo, where you go through this scene where you have to let it catch. You're like, oh, no, I'm not going to make it. But that's just part of the game. And I like those little things thrown in. I like those little surprises. That was an amazing sequence in the game as you're just descending slowly into the <laughs> darkness of the water. That was really powerful. I'll just mention, I think, that like vignette where control is taken away from you for quite a long time was more fleshed out than anything in Limbo. You did have these kind of little set pieces and scenarios that happened in Limbo, but with Inside, it felt like they had way more like thought put into them and way more gravity to them. Yeah, I definitely agree. We mentioned before that there are these skins or humanoids. They don't appear to be exactly human, but something that is manufactured in this factory, though, again, the story's so vague, we really don't know. But at points in this game, you can actually <laughs> put your head in this thing that looks like a lamp and control these figures to manipulate these puzzles. It's a really, really cool mechanic to this game and something that it doesn't really share with Limbo, although you know, Limbo has the the mind control devices we were talking about earlier with the glow worms. But uh, yeah, Sean, I'm curious, what did you think about this mechanic? Something you enjoyed or did you think it was a little too much? No, I loved it. I thought it was so cool. And the, the animation when you're in the thing, I mean, it looks dangerous. You're just suspended by this thing on your skull, basically. But your boy is like making the motions of running with his arms and legs. It just looks so cool and cute in a game that is kind of dark and terrifying. That animation in particular, I thought was kind of funny and funny in a good way. But yeah. Uh, the first puzzle with that helmet, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I get to move this other guy around and then move my guy around. And it just added another element to the puzzle. It was very creative and it was very different from anything that was in Limbo. Yeah. So we have to mention it one part in the game. Speaking of these humanoids, you swim into this giant tank. And you don't know what to expect. And all of a sudden, 
there is this huge <laughs> amalgamation of body parts, arms and legs. And uh, it reminds me, and I can't remember what it's called. I meant to look it up for the call. But do you remember in Castlevania, Symphony of the Night, that large blob of humans, you just kind of knock off like different pieces. It's like a big ball. Yeah, Legion. Yeah, Legion. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, that's a really good call out. It's definitely similar. Uh, Legion, the the bodies are separate from each other, where an inside, it, it really is more like a blob with like arms hanging off of it. But that that's a really good comparison. Yeah, it's known as the Huddle, and basically it had been an idea for the game since 2010. The animator, Andreas Normand Grontved, had been brought aboard Playdead to do preliminary animations for it, and it's basically based on a drawing by an artist known as Morton Bramson. And I just want to put that out there, I don't know anything about the artist, but... Uh, yeah, man, it is very, very bizarre and strange. And they basically say that this entire game was based around one of his paintings known as The Huddle. But uh, yeah, that kind of brings us to the last 20 minutes of the game, right, Sean? I do want to back up and say that before we got to The Huddle, there is one thing that I loved about this game involving the husks and the mind control and that is that in the middle of the game, there is this puzzle that is actually a series of smaller puzzles. And it's really brilliant because it takes place on like three different floors yes. where you're riding this elevator and you find a platform that has a number on it. And when you step on it, the number goes from zero to one. So, you know, it's like it's a counter of how many bodies, like live bodies or dead bodies. That oh, you can yeah. Get and in one the instance, that was a little disturbing. Yeah. Yes. So but the idea is that you have to go through all these different levels and all these different rooms and floors and solve little puzzles to get more people to follow you to this platform. And I loved that segment of the game because that's the kind of thing that usually turns me off where I can see this long goal in front of me and I know I have to do like a lot of BS to get to it. It can be overwhelming when you see something that says, oh man, I got to get 20 dudes to follow me onto this platform. I don't, how am I going to do this? I don't feel like doing this. But then as you're doing it, you're like, oh, this is great. Like, let's go, <laughs> gang. Like, come on. Come on, my dudes. And then you get more and more and you're like the Pied Piper of these things following you around. And uh, it takes up a good chunk of the game in the middle of the game. So I just wanted to uh, to mention that as one of my favorite parts. That is the part of the game that completely sucked me in when I made it there. I'm like, this is brilliant. I love that puzzle. It was so well designed. And uh, like you said, just collecting all these guys in various different manners to put on that platform so that, you know, you had a correct body count to open that door to the next area. As macabre as it was, like finding that dead body and knowing that you had to use that to get into the next room. Really powerful visually, puzzle was well done, and you know, even tugged on my emotions a little bit. So, kind of the perfect puzzle. All right, so let's get back into the huddle and towards the end section of the game. I quite enjoyed it because the game goes off the rails in such <laughs> a good way, yes, in such an exciting, bombastic way 
that I was just like laughing out loud, not because it's funny, but just because it was so weird that it made me uncomfortable that I was like that kind of laughter, you know? And it's like, there's people like the normal quote unquote people in this research facility are like screaming and running away and you're smashing through everything and rolling over fixtures and furniture and then you go into water again and then the huddle like squeezes into small spaces and it's really just gross and off-putting <laughs> to see and hear. It was just great because it really took the game over the top and in, in a way that straddled the line between grotesquerie, if that's a word, and silliness. Yeah. It just in such a perfect way. And it was so like risky in an artistic way. It could have looked so stupid, you know, and I'm sure some people probably think it is, but from everybody on our forums and everybody that I've read on the internet and talked to, they just really succeeded. I'd never seen something go off the rails purposely that worked as well as this. It just really nailed it. Yeah, I mean, the body movements are incredible. Like the legs coming out of the bottom and the way the top sways, you know, back and forth. It's kind of like top heavy. I mean, I don't know how they motion captured this, but they did an incredible (laughs) job of animating it. You know what I mean? It's so brilliant. I'm going to guess there wasn't that much mocap involved. (laughs) Maybe just some legs, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's great. And it's the last 20 minutes of the game. What I love about it so much is like with these puzzle games, and even with Limbo, the game gets progressively harder and harder till you get to the last puzzle which is the hardest. But this one, once you get to that huddle sequence, it's not hard. It's just a lot of fun, you know? It's so entertaining, and what a great way to end a game. I think I had put something on the forums about this. Like, usually, like, if I'm playing another type of game where I'm doing, like, boss battles and stuff like that, and if a boss is tougher earlier on in a game than the last boss, it upsets me a lot because I want it to be progressively harder. But for something like this... I don't know, man. It was like a victory lap or something. It was awesome. It was so much fun, you know? And I thought it was the perfect way to end this game. Man, I hope these guys might be interested in some point of doing a blob horror game. They'd be awesome (laughs) at it.
But uh, yeah, man, let's move right along to the environments in this game. And we mentioned before that Limbo was grayscale, so there is this lack of color except for blacks, whites, and grays. But then inside, I would say it's more earth tony. It's not quite black and white. It's real dark, but there is a hint of some color every once in a while. One of the most notable places would be on your main character, who has a red shirt on. Now, it's not a bright red. It's a dull down color, but, you know, it's still present, and it, you know, makes you focus on that. So, a lack of color in both of these games was definitely a developmental choice. And just kind of curious, Sean, you know, what did you think about this? Would these games been better in color, or does it somehow fit the mood of these games? I think in both cases, it's appropriate for each one. You know, Limbo has this, it almost looks like a black and white film. It does have this like kind of grainy look to it on top of just being in black and white. Um, It reminds me of something from the early days of film, whereas inside the graphics not only are in color, but the art style is way sharper. There are a lot of straight angles and a lot Mm -hmm. higher contrast. It's so similar but different to kind of cut to the chase of a final thought of mine is that these games are so similar but different. It's so amazing how you can take two games that are kind of like the same thing, but it's so different in so many ways that they're so distinct from each other. It's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, you were mentioned before, like with Inside... It has a more, what I would say, modernistic look. There are a lot of shapes and angles and things like that, whereas Limbo has this film noir kind of look to it, as well as like uses sort of like German expressionism, which is basically using the physical characteristics of the environment to portray the mood. You know, there's a lot of sharp things in the environment. It's very menacing. A lot of points and angles and things like that. So the environment really helps spotlight the mood of the game. So these games, I would say, are very artistic compared to other games that we normally play as gamers, right? So we mentioned before that to develop Limbo, they received some artistic grants as well as when they did Inside, they got a million dollars from the Danish Film Institute to develop that project. So they're getting money and fundings from art institutes to make a video game, which is kind of a strange ground when you think about it. But in another sense, I've always thought of video games as art. But in this case, it's almost like I'm thinking of art as a video game, so it's flipped because it is seemingly more of a piece of artwork than most things that we're used to playing. I can kind of agree with that. I think it's almost like when you read a book, most of the books that you read, like novels, let's say, I always wonder, like, is this literature or is this just a novel? You know what I mean? So yeah. Where I strongly and decisively consider video games to be art and video games are an art form. I don't think that is a thing that is up for debate. It kind of hasn't been for a long time, thank God. But (laughs) I would say games like Limbo and Inside are more on the artistic side of things than, say, some kind of conventional like a Tetris or something. All right, so... One thing that we have to talk about with this game, and we kind of skimmed over it briefly earlier, is the violence. 
is the violence in this game excessive? Does it cross the line or not? And we had two quotes from our participants this month. Our buddy Crabmaster says, Like many of you guys, I've played a ton of games filled with violence over the years. This one sticks out to me, though, for its violence. The way the violence was portrayed in Limbo even more reinforced to me. This was in the style of an early Flash game slash video where a young designer would be gratuitous because it was, quote, edgy or, quote, cool. From watching your boy slowly drown and see the life leave him to getting stuck with arrows to getting dismembered by a saw blade, it never seemed to fit the feel of the rest of the game's vibe to me. Did these kinds of things stick out to anyone else, or is it just me? And um, in sort of a response to that, our buddy Zofar53 said, I don't see the deaths as particularly violent. They're not really bloody or gory, but they are definitely disturbing. I didn't take this as the developer being gratuitous. I saw it more as just one more thing that emphasized this place where the boy has found himself is not a friendly place. It's harsh, things are out to get him, and every time he died, it sent a chill up my spine because it always looked more brutal than I would normally expect from a game of its kind. So, Sean, I want to get your take on this. Is this violence excessive? Does it cross the line? I don't think it crosses the line. I do think there is a some kind of shock value that they were going for that you become kind of numb to it after a while. There's yeah. definitely that element of like, whoa, his head just came off. And then by the thousandth time that it happens, you're just like, all right, come on, let's go. I don't need to see this animation again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, you get you do get numb to it. I do want to say the use of animals came close to triggering me. And I will say in inside, there's a puzzle early where you have to shoot these chicks out of a hay baler to knock a hay bale down. And I didn't realize that it was a hay baler. And I said, if this is some kind of grinder or a wood chipper and the chicks go into it, I'm turning the game off and I'm not going to play this game. And I'm serious. And I was just like, oh, man, if this is what I think it's going to be, I'm not playing this game. But luckily, it, it shoots them out and they remain living. But um, as far as the attack dogs and everything, I found that to be a little disturbing because I I don't like dogs being used as weapons. So... That was where it kind of got to me. So I can see, again, different things kind of bother or trigger or disturb different people for different reasons. So, yeah, while the boy's head falling off in limbo for the thousandth time didn't bother me, the attack dogs did in inside. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, I didn't think it was excessive. A lot of it, especially in limbo, was very cartoony. The unnamed boy doesn't have the same humanoid appearance that it does in Inside. So for that reason, it probably bothered me less than that. You know, I'm with you. I, I thought that it's a lot more disturbing in Inside, you know, with the dogs, those mermaid girls that we were talking about. Yeah, some of that stuff did get to me. But, you know, at the same time, I don't know how to say that this game to me is worse than playing like a Call of Duty game. and shooting other humans. So it didn't bother me in that sense. You know, I never thought it was excessive. I don't look at video games as being something that are excessively violent in the first place, especially not this game. Like I said, it's up to everyone's own discretion 
what lines get drawn sure. as far as what you find acceptable. For example, I saw a couple seconds of footage of Mortal Kombat 11 recently, and I said, man, I'm never playing that. That's just too gruesome for me. You know what I mean? Like the violence is just way too much for yeah. me. So that's just an example. But meanwhile, I can play any kind of crazy horror game with buckets of blood everywhere. But there was something <laughs> about the Mortal Kombat that I saw that was like, whoa, nope, too much. That just rubs me the wrong way. I can't put my finger on why, but I won't be playing that. I completely understand that. And I think a lot of it has to do with context. Yeah. That's what Mortal Kombat showcases, right? They've done that since the first Mortal Kombat game, you know, which even led to people trying to ban it for a while. To each their own, like you said, everybody has a different line in the sand. All right, let's talk a little bit about the music, or should I say, lack thereof of music. Now, both of these games do have a soundtrack. It was created by Martin Stig Anderson, and his specialization was in acoustomatic music. It's basically non-traditional music created from generated sounds that have no apparent visual source. Many reviews stated that Limbo had no music, but Anderson countered that his sound arrangements helped to evoke emotions, and that the acoustomatic music was intended to leave room for interpretation by the player in the same manner as the game's art and story. He noted that this helps with immersion within the game by making no attempt to control the emotional tone. If the players are scared, it will probably make them more scared when there's no music to take them by the hand and tell them how to feel. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of uh, get your thoughts on the music of both games. Did you enjoy the music and sound effects, or do you think there might have been a more appropriate soundtrack for these games? You know, I don't remember too much the music in Inside, but I would probably guess it was close to the music in Limbo, which goes as follows. <laughs> And that's it. 
I think, yeah. right? <laughs> like, I just gave you all the music in limbo. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't know about this acoustomatic thing. I would have used the word monotonous. And when I say monotonous, I don't mean monotonous like in a bad way. Like, yeah, not like describe, boring. Right. But I literally mean like mono and tone, like one note just kind of droning on. And I don't think it's bad. I think it quite fits in the way that using black and white kind of limits your visual uh, experience in a directed way. The music does the same thing for me. So I know Krabby didn't like it at all. Some other people were more indifferent to it. I think it fits. And I wouldn't say like, oh, I loved it. It's not quite like that there's something there. But again, with the with the ambiguous nature, if you were in limbo, this might be what you would hear, you know? Right. So I think they, they did a good job there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, and I think sometimes lack of a soundtrack is a good thing. I don't think every game needs to have a soundtrack. I think... This game was more focused on sound design and um, the noises you made throughout the game as you would traverse things, you'd step on different things, uh, you would squash things, you know, no matter what it might be. But it's important to note with Inside, you're mentioning the sounds and the, the humming sounds, that the music was created by routing sound through a human skull and recording the result. The sound created a somber, chill quality that often complements Inside's visuals. That's bizarre, but at the same time, (laughs) it's kind of cool in an artistic way, right? I mean, to to get these sounds that you would route it through that, and these games are kind of mindscapes, so to think of the sound being produced in that way is, I don't know, it's kind of neat. I don't know, maybe I'm alone in that. No, I like it. It's kind of like when we talked about Oxenfree and the guy made the music by taking vintage radios from World War II and Mm -hmm. just tuning them to different frequencies. Like I like when games or film or whatever it is, or even like uh, a musical album has some kind of weird story to it, how it was made, you know? So that is pretty cool. Even if it's a little morbid using (laughs) a human skull, like it's, it's cool though. Yeah. All right, Sean. Well, it seems we've talked about both games pretty thoroughly. So uh, let's get some final thoughts and discuss the endings of these games. And I had asked our good buddy Crabmaster what he thought about these endings in terms of what they mean and if they're satisfying. And here's what he had to say. Hey, listeners. This is Crabmaster2000 from the RF Generation Forums. Rich and Sean were kind enough to ask for my take on the endings from both Limbo and Inside from April's Playcast games. Uh, They tend to tease me for overanalyzing things on the forum, so I'll do my best to keep this short and concise for you guys. So let's tackle Limbo first. Uh, The game was obviously very ambiguous uh, in its entirety, and some aspects of the story, such as the mystery girl being a sister, were definitely not apparent to me while I was playing the game. And I made the incorrect assumption that she was a love interest of some sort. Um, So my take on Limbo is that your character perhaps committed some act he sees as irredeemable, maybe even as severe as something like suicide. And because of this, he is cursed to relive his greatest fears. So all of these obstacles you're encountering in the game are traumatic moments from his life, such as drowning, uh, spiders, bear traps, bullies, 
maybe even some of the locations that you visit have something to do with those events, like being in the woods or the hotel or the factory. I feel like the girl is perhaps mourning your death, and you catch a short glimpse of this before being forced to like relive your trauma endlessly in this kind of cycle. Um, the idea there is that having that quick hopeful moment every now and then it keeps you motivated to keep running through all of your traumas where if you had no motivation to keep moving you just give up and and hide at some point from your journey so it's kind of uh, forces you to keep reliving that cycle Uh, for meeting everyone else's experiences on the forums it sounds like there's tons of different theories though as to what limbo is saying so hopefully i'm not totally off base and 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 some of you other guys um, share some similar thoughts to what i have um, as for inside, um, I felt just as confused as playing as I did with Limbo for a good chunk of the game, but near the end it kind of started taking hold of, of kind of a, a more solid picture in my mind. So obviously in this world there, there's some kind of mind control, and I feel like your character is meant to stand out from the rest of the population. Um, My thoughts are that there's this corporation that produces these human kind of husks intended to be purchased or used for things like hard labor for for business or maybe like a personal slave or like a nanny or butler kind of idea um, for home use. Um, And as with any corporation, they have an R&D department that's experimenting and working on new products, the next big thing kind of idea. And one such experiment is this horrific blob of these many human husks that are combined into one massive husk. Whether it was on purpose or an accident, this this giant husk um, can inherently use the mind control ability that you've countered with the with the helmets throughout the game. The entire game, from start until you merge with it, I feel like it's calling you in that direction, and ultimately you have no choice but to keep moving towards it. So even though it feels like you're in control especially when you're controlling others, something's secretly pulling the strings on you the whole time. It seems like there's some kind of internal humanity that this being has, and and I think it craves freedom at any cost, and it chooses your playable character because of how resourceful and skilled you are at surviving. So once he lures you all the way to him and you connect with it and become part of this thing, um, it absorbs your consciousness and it can use your abilities to not only escape the confinement tank that it's in but the whole the whole building and i think some of the people that work in this corporation sense that these things they're making are somewhat human and and so that's why you see a few of them that that assist you in escaping that open doors and and um throw that like uh, help you uh switch levers you can't reach and stuff like that to to get out I get the feeling that after you escape the building, you don't survive for long. I think you die out on the uh, the shore there looking out at the, the water. and I think it's kind of a bittersweet ending where, where you're happy to have that freedom, even if it costs you your life. You had those, those few moments that were yours to do with as you wanted. So I, I consider that a happy ending, even though it's not technically very happy. Uh, Limbo didn't connect with me nearly as much as Inside did, and I think that had to do with it being a lot more open-ended and theological, whereas Inside really scratched my like sci-fi dystopian itch for me. I, I really love that kind of stuff. It also got really weird and interesting near the end, um, whereas the further I got into Limbo, it, it still had this like consistent feel throughout the whole game. So I think if you don't 
latch on limbo right away. There's nothing later to pull you in more. Whereas inside, I wasn't sure if I liked it off the bat, and I kind of grew to like it more and more as I learned more about the game. But anyway, that's my thoughts on on the games and the endings. Um, hopefully, mirrors some of yours. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the Playcast for inviting me to share my thoughts on some interesting titles that I may not have played without their encouragement. So, thanks, guys. Looking forward to checking out the episode. Thanks so much, Kelsey, for that response. We really appreciate it. Sean, let's go ahead and start off by talking about the endings of the game and kind of describing what happens. I'll let you take Limbo. Sure. So in Limbo, you finally get to the final puzzle, which is that really challenging gravity puzzle that we were talking about. But you go into the ending of the game literally feet first, and you smash through what appears to be a very thick pane of glass in slow motion, and you finally descend onto the ground where you can slowly walk again, and you will walk up to your sister who seems to be digging or searching in the ground under the treehouse where the game starts. Basically, she notices your presence, which is signified by her kind of perking up, Yeah. And then the game is over. So there's no interaction between the two characters. You're given a sense that she has a sense that you're there. And then, boom, credit rolls. And then the game just restarts where it left off, right? Yes. Kicks you right back to the title screen. Yeah, did I say credits roll? I don't even think they do, do they? I'm not sure. I, like, <laughs> I think it's like more like slideshow credits than actual rolling credits. But either way, there's a sharp cutoff as soon as the sister kind of perks up like, oh, like no sound, but just picture that like you realize there's someone behind you and she just slightly perks up and then it's over. Yeah, and I felt like maybe she runs away as well. Well, You're at Debatable, it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I, I do want to mention, again, this game has no story. So the reason that we know that that is his sister's because this is something that the developers actually came out with, right? Yeah, it was part of the only tagline or synopsis of the game. I think that was on Steam or something uh. that says, like, Trapped in limbo, a boy must discover his sister's fate or something along those lines. It's very, very short and to the point, as ambiguous as it is, it gives you those two pieces of information that you are in limbo and you're trying to figure out what happened to your sister. And then let's go ahead and talk about the ending of Inside. As we mentioned, the last 20 minutes of the game, you're in the huddle and you're just running frantically to try to break out of this factory and, I guess, escape to freedom. But what happens is when you finally break through the wall of the factory, you roll down a big hill and you end up on a beach. And there's just water around you and there's really no place to go. That's how the game ends. Unless, and I don't know if you knew this, Sean, there is actually an alternate ending to this game. In Limbo, you can find these hidden eggs... But in the game inside, there are basically these orbs. They look like old landmines to me, but you actually break them and pull off the lights on them. And if you find all five of them, it says that the boy returns to one of the bunkers and gains access to a new area. 
He reaches an area that includes a bank of computers and one of the mind control helmets, powered by a nearby socket. The boy pulls the plug from the socket, upon which the character takes the same stance as the zombies, and the game ends moments later. That's very interesting. Did you know about the alternate ending to this game, or did you watch a video on it? I did watch it on YouTube, and it is intriguing. To me, that's not the canon ending. And I I just have to say, I really, really like Krabby's version of Inside because I think as the years have gone by, there's so many fan theories on Limbo that are really worth chewing on. But Inside is kind of a newer game, so people are still like trying to figure it out, so to Mm -hmm. speak. Yeah. Uh, So there's not as much wealth of material as far as fan theories go. And for my money, Krabby came up with a really good one. And I'm not just being sycophantic because he's a friend of ours. I really like his interpretation of the story. I do too, and when I first played this game, I felt like maybe I was trying to escape like a concentration camp or something. It had that feeling to it, and I don't know why that is. But you realize that you're not escaping, that you're trying to get inside this factory. And so it is almost like a rescue operation. And I like what Krabby said about how you're kind of being drawn to this large husk you know like it has this sort of uh telekinesis right that it's sending the signal out to you to try to aid it with the alternate ending what makes that interesting is that when you unplug the mind control device you turn into a husk and so it's interesting that the alternate ending does show this sort of connection between the boy and the husk that i really didn't see in playing the game It's time to get into our final thoughts on both of these games. And Sean, I want to put these questions to you. Would you play these games again? And why is it that these puzzle games work for you when you normally dislike puzzle games? You know, it took me like eight years or whatever it is to play Limbo a second time. And I think that was the perfect amount of time to let pass before doing it again. So maybe eight years from now, I'll play Inside and Limbo again. So, you know, I have nothing against replaying these games at some point in the distant future. Again, to just kind of reiterate what I was saying before, I'm not a fan of puzzles, environmental puzzles, platforming puzzles, and all that jazz. We were talking about Limbo earlier, that that constant death scenario that helped me to figure out what not to do and thusly solve the puzzles through trial and error. With Inside, it was a little bit different because there's not so much of that death mechanic. Certainly you die a lot, but it's nowhere near like what happens in Limbo. I think with Inside, the puzzles are kind of, if not easier, they're just more like streamlined and they go more step by step and the flow is just better. That's the best way I can explain it. I just really liked both games. And as far as my final thoughts on the game, I thought of an analogy for Playdead Studios and for these two games. If you take a band and a band comes out with an album and it's really good, their second album is also really good, but it's different in ways that you can't quite enunciate. And I want to take the Smashing Pumpkins as an example and let me propose something to you. 
because I know you're a fan like I am of the Smashing Pumpkins. So I'm going to say this. Limbo is gish and inside is Siamese dream. And what I mean is with gish, the Smashing Pumpkins first album, it's very organic. It's very lush. There's life to it, but there's also this kind of even handedness to the songwriting. Whereas with Siamese Dream, you could tell they were building on what they did with Gish, but they were more slick. It was a more commercial album, and they did stuff that was a little bit more experimental while still having the baseline of what they had done previously. I think that really fits well with what Limbo is to Inside and vice versa. I really like both games. I think I like Inside a little bit more than I like Limbo. And maybe that's because of what I was talking about earlier, where the set pieces are a little bit more dramatic and the ending is way more bombastic. But Limbo will always have a special place in my heart. It was one of the first Xbox Live games I ever played. It really is a strong memory from a certain period in time in my gaming life where I was in this new generation of gaming consoles. And Limbo was one of the first games I played on my 360, which ended up being one of my favorite consoles of all time. So I have this special place in my heart for it and a nostalgia for it. So yeah, I highly recommend both games. They are, as we stated, works of art. And while Limbo can get a little bit frustrating at times, it's nothing like controller chucking top-notch frustration. It's nothing like that at all. You Most of the time, you can just quit the game and the next time you come back to it, you'll have an easier time with a fresh mind on it. So yeah. High recommendations on both games from me. What about you, Rich? Yeah, I just have to really echo what you said. Definitely high recommendations for both of these games. Limbo was the type of game I'd never played anything like it before. I really like the artistic style. I'm a huge fan of puzzle games, so it immediately clicked with me. I just completely fell in love with it to the point of I didn't even realize there was a little clunkiness to it until I played Inside. And uh, I really didn't want to like Inside as much, if not more, than Limbo, if that makes sense. Because Limbo was my first experience with that type of game. But once I got to that puzzle with the 20 husk, I don't know, something changed for me at that point. And just the artistic style, the brilliance of those puzzles, that last 20-minute romp through that game. It was just bliss and just so well-designed. And if I had to choose one over the other to play again, it would definitely be Inside. Both games are fantastic. Can't recommend them enough. And definitely see one, maybe two of them, on my year-end list in December. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed this playthrough and I'm really thankful that you were on board having to play Limbo again and also do Inside when I know that you're not the biggest fan of puzzle games. All right, so let's go ahead and get into what games we're going to be playing in May and in June. Our next recording, of course, will be in Austin, Texas. It will be live with myself and Sean. Sean, tell them what we're going to be talking about. 
Well, we're finally going to be caught up with one of our favorite studios, Quantic Dream, and your boy, David Cage. We've played all of their games, except for Omicron. We never played Omicron, but we played Fahrenheit. We've done Heavy Rain. We've done Beyond Two Souls. And now, finally, we're going to do Detroit Become Human for May. So I actually just installed this game on my PS4 because I'm getting smarter about when I'm playing a, a modern game. Like, remember, you have to put the disc in and let it install for a couple hours before <laughs> you actually play it. So I popped that disc in last night and I will probably start the game today. Awesome. Yeah, uh, if I can kick my son off of Fortnite long enough to let this thing uh, load... <laughs> Nice. I will uh, get that installed, too. I'll go ahead and grab it in my game room and uh, pop it in when I go downstairs. I cannot wait to play Detroit, and I think it's the perfect game for us to get together and talk about. So, yeah, looking forward to that a lot. All right, well, in June, we are playing two games in the same series, that being the classic Twisted Metal series. And we're going to see if the old game holds up, and we're going to find out how we feel about a new iteration of that game. So in June, we're going to be playing Twisted Metal 2, which I've been told is the best Twisted Metal in that early series on the PlayStation. And then we're also going to play a more modern game in Twisted Metal Black, which is available in the PS2, PS3, and PS4. Now, from my understanding, the physical copy is on the PS2, and then the other two are downloadable only or available on certain Twisted Metal compilations. So, Sean, do you have a history with the Twisted Metal series like I do? No, you know what? I really don't. And being a PlayStation fanboy, you would think this would be something that was more in my wheelhouse, which I'm actually really excited to play them. I've played them before, but never in depth, like just, you know, throwing them on for a couple minutes uh, just to screw around and uh, never got deep into any of them. So this is rather exciting and not that the games that we're playing lately have been long in-depth things but twisted metal is not a story-based game that you have to sit and slog yeah. through and beat it you know what i mean like i know there's a campaign or whatever but i have a feeling this will be a more casual low-key kind of playthrough for both of us yeah. which will be a nice break for the summer maybe while i'm there we can maybe fire up twisted metal 2 and play against each other for a little while that'd be fun too yeah i'm down that'll be great
And that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you for participating in the playthrough. In June, we'll be crashing, smashing, and exploding our way through two titles from the PlayStation Universe's most beloved vehicular combat series. Join us as we buckle in for Twisted Metal 2 on the PlayStation 1 and Twisted Metal Black for the PlayStation 2. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow.